across the world in sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right? Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. Namaste, shalom, wassalam alaikum, konnichiwa, my brothers and sisters. Welcome to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur. Mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, mi amigos? Senor, senoritas, Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Mi amo y Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I hope you're doing good. I hope you're doing well. What's happening, man? You good? You feeling all right? Feeling fantastic? I hope you are. I hope you're doing everything that you need to do to make this world, to make your place, to make your neighborhood, to make your area, to make your region, to make your state, to make your country, to make your society a better place to be. Say what's up. Say what's going on and give some good vibes to everyone around you so we can move the society, so we can move the state, so we can move this planet in the right direction toward love, peace, unity, harmony for all, man. That's what I'm talking about today. On the podcast, got a lot of things I want to get into. I'm going to be talking about some NFL free agency. I'm going to be talking about some NCAA tournament. Yes, I'm going to be just giving a uh, final word for the 2020-2021 season for my Georgetown Hoyas, who got blown out by University of Colorado, decided not to show up and play. But um, as the season for Georgetown is over, I'm more interested in the Kenner League than I am for the remainder of this NCAA tournament. But, you know, I'm going to be talking about that because that's the main deal that's the main thing that's going on right now. But the main thing I'm going to be discussing after the NCAA tournament, of course, is the NBA trade deadline coming up this Thursday. Which teams are going to be buyers? Which teams are going to be sellers? Which teams are going to be making moves? What are the Los Angeles Lakers going to do? Are they going to be buyers? Are they going to be sellers after the injury to LeBron James? High ankle sprain. He's going to be out up to four weeks. Anthony Davis, he's not yet ready to return. The Lakers right now, I believe, are in second or third place. I believe they're in third or fourth place, somewhere around there, because I know Utah is still up there. I know Phoenix is still doing well. But basically, if you're going to be losing LeBron, if you're the Lakers, and you're going to be losing LeBron for a significant amount of time, and you don't have Anthony Davis coming back for a little bit, and you have to realize that both when LeBron and AD do come back, they're not going to just pick up where they left off. This is going to be a situation where they're going to have to shake a little ring, a little rust off of them. So are we going to be taking a look at the Lakers? Could there be a scenario that the Lakers could be somewhere around 7th or 8th or ninth as we reach the playoffs, as it starts somewhere around Memorial Day? What does that mean not only for the Lakers, but if you're a team like the Utah Jazz, if you're a team like the Phoenix Suns, do you really want to see that happen? I mean, do you really want to see the Lakers faltering right now? But by the time that LeBron and AD come back and they get their sea legs under them, they're rip-roaring, ready to go, you're going to be talking about a first-round playoff game between a team that in the Utah Jazz that might win 60 games going up against the Los Angeles Lakers and all the good stuff and all the great season that the Utah Jazz have had could be down the drain in one round, in the opening round? 
You still feel that, you know what, as long as Anthony Davis and LeBron James are on the team and they're relatively healthy, that the Lakers should be the favorites over any squad in the Western Conference. So with that in mind, are the Lakers then at the trade deadline going to be buyers or sellers? It'll, we will see. We will see. Um, are the Clippers going to try to do anything to improve their point guard situation? They, they, they've slumped a little bit. Saw their game last night against the Atlanta Hawks. Got a little lucky. The second team came in after being down by 22. The Clippers being down by 22 in the third quarter. Luke Kennard uh, sparked the comeback along with uh, Terrence Mann sparking the comeback. But, you know, the the Clippers, I don't know, man. You take a look at that team the way it's constituted. Are they going to be a squad that you believe in? Are you, a, are, are you a believer in the Clippers or do they need to do something? A.K.A. go get themselves a point guard. What kind of point guard are we talking about? Are we talking about someone of a Kyle Lowry uh, type of acquisition, that type of uh, of uh, talent? Are we looking at someone who could just be middle of the road? I heard that Alonzo Ball is a guy that the uh, Clippers are very much interested in. I mean, what are we going to be doing here? What assets do the Clippers have to make a move to get anybody at the point guard position that can help them out for real down the stretch and into the playoffs? So that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at. That's one of the things on this podcast that I'll be talking about. What what are we going to be doing here, Boston Celtics fans? Talk to me, please. What are you guys going to be doing? Do you want those guys to do anything? Do you guys need some improvement? Are you going to ride with the understanding that, look, the foundation four for the Celtics in terms of their success is concerned when we're speaking about Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Kemba Walker and Marcus Smart, and you can even throw Daniel Tice or Tristan Thompson in there. The fact that they played so little together reflects on what the record is for Boston. Are you going to be under the assumption that once everybody comes back and is relatively healthy, that Boston doesn't need to make a uh, in-season trade or doesn't make doesn't need to make an in-season acquisition? Do they need another big? Do they need another wing to replace Gordon Hayward? Is there anybody out there? Are they going to try to get themselves a Victor Oladipo? Are they going to try to get themselves an Aaron Gordon? Are they going to be kicking the tires on that type of player? And if they are, they've got draft picks, but... Are you willing to give up a Marcus Smart to get someone of a quality of an Aaron Gordon? Are you willing to give up on the potential of a Romeo Langford to be throwing in with picks to go get yourself somebody who can help yourself in the now? Those are some of the things, man. Talk to me, Boston Celtics fam. Those are some of the things I'll be talking about. Also, hey, look, man, the Toronto Raptors are in complete free fall. They've hit rock bottom. They got blown out by Houston. Houston ended their 20-game losing streak. Blowing out the Raptors. They've had COVID-related issues. What do you do now if you're the Toronto Raptors with Cal Lowry? He's going to be a free agent. He's going to be 35 or 36 years old. If you're Masai Ujiri, do you sign him? Do you re-sign him? He is the most important player in Raptors history. He is the most recognizable player in Raptors history. He is the most beloved and decorated player in Raptors history. Is there is now the time for Masai to say, you know what, we're going to be moving on. We're going to be moving in a different direction. Norman Powell's going to be coming up for a free agency, and we want to re-sign him. We're going to try to build this team now around um, P- uh, Pascal Siakam, Fred Van Vliet, OG Ananobi, and Norman Powell. And anything that we can get for Kyle Lowry is going to be something that's going to be significant, and we can continue to rebuild that way. I mean, hell, you have to remember that Toronto is not playing in that beautiful country with some, with those beautiful women. 
up there. They don't have the ability up there in Toronto to be walking around the streets and looking at the uh, Vivica, uh, Vivica Foxes and the uh, um, um, Melissa Fords of the world. They're down there in uh, Tampa, where the strip clubs are a plenty, but still, it ain't Toronto in terms of the quality of beautiful women. So, not just women, but I mean, we're talking about a cosmopolitan major city like Toronto compared to Tampa, Florida. The fact that those guys have to relocate, the fact that those guys are basically on a 72-game road uh, 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 72-game road trip. Do we just throw this away? If you're Toronto, do you just go ahead and just kind of, you know, push the reset button? So when you do get back to um, the Air Canada Center, if you, when you do get back to your uh, home country for the franchise, that you can uh, have a new look, but also a brighter future with some quality that you get from the trade of Cal Lowry, it could be happening. It could be happening. Are the Orlando Magic going to look to rebuild? Are they going to trade the two best players? I know that Aaron Gordon wants out. <clears throat> he mentioned that. I was listening to uh, the Hoop uh, uh, podcast uh, with Brian Win- Windhorse. And he was talking about as far back as uh, February that uh, Aaron Gordon came in and asked for a trade from the Orlando Magic. And there's been some teams out there kicking the tires about uh, Vucevic, Sasha Vucevic. What, what's up with that? Are the Orlando Magic looking to do that? I know that, you know, they've been hit by some bad luck and by some injuries and by some bad drafting. But um, if you're that team, if you're the Magic, what do you do? Do you hold off and believe that hopefully with Markel Starks, oh, Markel, uh, Markel uh, Fultz coming back, uh, Jonathan Isaac coming back from major knee injuries, that maybe you could go ahead and try to uh, Cobble something with uh, Vucevic and Aaron Gordon with uh, with those two, with those uh, uh, players? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. It'll be interesting. So, with the NBA trade deadline moving up, those are just some of the questions that are going to be answered by Thursday, Thursday afternoon Eastern Standard Time. And what players will be moved that can impact the playoffs and playoff contenders? Lonzo Ball, as I mentioned before, going to the Clippers. Victor Oladipo, Aaron Gordon, possibly going to... The Boston Celtics, maybe. John Collins, he's still upset in Atlanta. He's going to be moved. There's been rumors that the Mavs are looking to uh, see what the trade market value is for Christoph Porzingis. I mean, what's going to be up with that? So what are the, what's the scuttlebutt? What's the rumors? What's going down in terms of the trade impact, the trade possibilities in the NBA, we'll take a look at that. And also, man, the impact on the Charlotte Hornets after after the devastating injury to LaMelo Ball, man. That, that, that guy was headed toward Rookie of the Year, no question about it. Now, Anthony Edwards has been on a little bit of a scoring binge. He scored 40 or 43. I know I know Carl uh, Anthony Towns had 43. So, yeah, I know between, um, I know between Carl Anthony Towns and Anthony Edwards, they scored 83 the other night against the uh, Phoenix Suns on the road. So I'm going to go on the assumption that Anthony Edwards scored 40. He's picked up his scoring. He's picked up his play since the beginning of the season. James Wiseman is stuck in purgatory in terms of, is he going to be playing? How many minutes is he going to be playing? He started the season uh, under starting five, and now there's games where his DNPCD um, you know, the situations like that, and you're going to be playing for a team in Golden State who's looking to make the playoffs. They don't they don't have time to really go through all of the rookie mistakes that someone like a James Weissman is going to put them through. So his 
minutes have been inconsistent and it doesn't look to be changing anytime soon. So with LaMelo Ball going down for the rest of the year, the Hornets announced this past Sunday that he had broken a bone in his right uh, wrist. He suffered the injury Saturday during the Hornets loss, blowout loss to the Los Angeles Clippers. So, you know, what, what does that mean for the rookie of the year moving forward? Man, with all these injuries that are happening in the NBA, not just for rookie of the year, man, but what about the most valuable player? LeBron's going to be out for a week. Joel Embiid has been hurt. Embiid has been hurt and missed some time. I mean, yeah, Jokic is, hasn't been missing any time, but Denver hasn't really been winning at the clip that you might like to uh, have someone as your MVP. Are you going to give it to Giannis again? Or are you going to give it to James Harden after the shenanigans that he played in Houston to get himself over to the uh, Brooklyn Nets? So it's still a hodgepodge in terms of uh, not just who's going to be the front runner to win the rookie of the year, but also who's going to be winning the most valuable player award in the league. But you know, that's, that's a discussion for another time. So those are the type of things I'm going to be discussing today on my podcast, Wendell's World of Sports with yours truly, Wendell Wallace. Also, man, free agency, NFL free agency. What team helped themselves the most on paper? We don't know about these things in terms of, you know, the Washington football team used to win the offseason every single year when they would sign all of these guys to these large contracts and they come in and not do anything. See Albert Hainsworth, see LeVar Arrington, see uh, Daniel Stubblefield, see Antoine Randall L, see Mark Grinnell, see a lot of these guys. So just because a team might have done a lot of good work, and a lot of times, Winning the offseason or winning free agency is not getting themselves the biggest fish. It's getting the players that best fit, fit what you're trying to do and then moving forward. So which organization did that? For instance, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers didn't make any loud noises by going out and getting the top of the line free agent or, or spend extravagantly on one or two guys. But they did they separate themselves from every team in the NFC with the uh, re-signing of their key players? What about Kansas City? Did they do enough with the offensive line signings to solidify themselves as the best team in the AFC? And which teams in each conference made moves to improve themselves? Everybody now, well, I shouldn't say everybody. I was listening to the Mike Greenberg show on television, and he's up there expounding about the Washington football team with the acquisition of Ryan Fitzpatrick that now far and away the Washington Fitzpatrick skins are now the uh, best team in the NFC least? I, I don't know. I don't know. And really, what what exactly does that mean? What, what, what exactly does that mean? Should all of a sudden now the acquisition of Fitzpatrick from uh, going to Washington, now should Tom Brady be, you know, should be worried? Should the Green Bay Packers be worried? Should the Los Angeles Rams be worried? I mean, what what, is, what exactly does that mean? And... Yeah, I can. I wouldn't say definitively that the football team from Washington, my Washington Snyderskins, who were the NFC East champions with a seven to nine record, would you see the rebuilding job that's going on in Philadelphia? The quarterback questions and others that rely that are being played with the New York Giants, and of course with the uh, Dallas Cowboys. We don't know about the defense, how well that's going to be improved, and we really don't know exactly what we're going to be getting, what you're going to be getting, what America team is going to be getting with the return of Dak Prescott and Zeke Elliott. Is Elliott going to return to something resembling him being a top two or three running back in the league? How 
much time is Dak Prescott going to need to recover from that devastating injury that he had week five of the NFL season? So, you know, a lot of questions with the Dallas Cowboys, too. Everybody assuming that, yes, Dak Prescott signed his contract, and that elevates the Cowboys to a team that should be as chewing to make the playoffs. Well, you know, hold on, Sparky. Let's let's kind of figure, let's kind of let's kind of uh, look and see what Dak Prescott is going to be like. A guy who's not going to be really into OTAs, or we don't know what he's going to be for training camp because he's still going to be rehabbing that injury. And again, he didn't pull a he didn't pull a muscle. You know, he, he didn't have a min, minor injury. That was a major major injury that he had. So what type of quarterback is he going to be coming back after it? We don't know. We don't know. Is he going to be the Dak Prescott of old, or is he going to be something where we sit there and go, oh, yeah, that injury was a lot worse for his career than we thought. So still, you know, the, the, the Washington did a good job in terms of the acquisition of some players, especially at the skill positions where they were very weak at the wide receiver and, of course, needed a quarterback. But, you know, I, I, I again, tell me what, I should be excited about. I would, I would much rather, again, be sitting in a position where we could draft ourselves a quarterback, where we could be in a position to get ourselves. Because especially there's some talk going around that Justin Fields is slipping, and depending upon what week it is, and depending upon how boring the how bored the sports world is, and how much they want to get their fix of talking football, that you know you'll you'll they'll search for a scout, or they'll search for a couple of people. Who say? Who might say? Eh, you know that Justin Fields. You know, I don't know. I don't know. Eh, that Trey Lance. Eh, I don't know. I don't know. Hey, that Matt Jones. You know, he's a little bit better than we thought. Or Cal Trask of Florida. Well, you know what? He's looking a little bit better. We had a second look of him on film, and we had a Zoom meeting with him. And uh, I don't know. So I mean, all of this nonsense is going to be thrown into the chitter chatter of what's going to be happening in the NFL as far as the draft is concerned. So. Which team is going to bite? Which team is going to move up? Which team is just going to say, fuck it, let's go up and do what we need to do to get ourselves one of these quarterbacks who might be falling? We, we, we've seen this on a pretty consistent basis when it comes to the drafted quarterbacks, right? I.e. Dan Marino, i.e. Um, Aaron Rodgers, i.e. Geno Smith, I mean, i.e. Dwayne Haskins. Well, we've seen these quarterbacks who at the beginning of the season were projected to go top two, top three, top four, Maybe at the end of the season, still projected to go anywhere between top three or no no higher than three, but no lower than 10. And all of a sudden, it gets to draft day, and you start hearing things about, well, you know, what's going on? We've heard that, uh, you know, this quarterback might not go here. This quarterback might not go there. And they go past the projected draft um, line, i.e. Matt Leinert. And all of a sudden, teams start inquiring at the number 12, number 15, number 18, number 20 position. Hey, what's going on with Justin Fields? Hey, why isn't anybody taking Trey Lance? Hey, what's up with Matt Jones? Wait, you know, this, that, and the other. So, you know, all of this stuff is to say that, yeah, free agency is important, but also we also can't exclude the NFL draft. We can't speak about who's going to be winning what division, which team is, you know, greatly improved and all these type of things until we finish the triumphant in terms of the offseason acquisition and get to the NFL draft and see which players, which teams are going to be drafting those players. So we've still got, you know, speaking about the Buffalo Bills, the Green Bay Packers, the Tennessee Titans, the Los Angeles Rams. Did they do enough so far to put themselves in the position to say that, you know what, if we have ourselves a solid draft, 
we have real expectations of doing some real things this upcoming season. Everybody's gaga goo goo over the big spending that the New England Patriots did, getting themselves, um, getting themselves a lot of players, or getting themselves the best players available to pull to uh, plug in the weaknesses of what the New England Patriots were, both on offense and defense. Well, the main thing you haven't plugged, the main thing you still haven't addressed, and you signed Cam Newton to a one-year contract. You're going to roll with Cam Newton again? I understand. I understand. I understand. Yes, he came in late. Yes, because of the pandemic, everything was goofy. Yes, he didn't have off-season workouts and OTAs and training camps. I get all that stuff. But, I mean, how much more... How much more of an improvement can Cam Newton make for the New England fans and for the New England organization to have you know, to live up to the expectations? I think there might be a little bit of denial when it comes to the New England Patriots. Everybody's sitting up there. I shouldn't say everybody. I don't. I don't pay with broad strokes, but there's a deal amongst some of the Patriots fans and some of the. New Englanders and Bostonians who are Patriot fans to sit there and go, well, because Tom Brady won the Super Bowl with Tampa Bay and that, that uh, you know, the Patriots and Bill Belichick has got to play get back. But somehow, someway, because of that, that Bill, Bill Belichick has to win a Super Bowl in the next couple of years to prove his worthiness as one of the greatest coaches in any sport with the accomplishments that he made to let everybody know that, hey, you know what, this wasn't all a situation of me writing the coattails of Tom Brady. It was a collaborative effort with more of Brady writing my coattails. So somehow, some way, the Patriots have to go all in to uh, try to win a Super Bowl in the next two or three years. I'm telling you right now, New Englanders, listen to me. Bostonians, listen to me. Patriots fans, listen to me. You guys aren't winning the Super Bowl in the next couple of years. I, I know Bill Belichick is great. I know he's an awesome coach. I know Josh McDaniel is a, is, McDaniels is a fantastic offensive coordinator. As long as you've got Patrick Mahomes playing for the Kansas City football team, as long as those guys are there and you've got Cam Newton and you're a Patriots, and you're the Patriots and you've got Cam Newton as your quarterback, you ain't winning. As long as Josh Allen is still with the Buffalo Bills, and he proves that last year wasn't a fluke, you're not winning the AFC East. I'm glad that you upgraded your tight end position. I'm glad that you upgraded some of the weaknesses on your squad. You're you're not better than the Buffalo Bills. If, If they continue their potential in terms of the relationship between... Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs, if they could do something to improve their running game, if Sean McDermott can improve on the defense and Josh Allen continues his meteoric rise, being one of the elite quarterbacks in the league, if those things happen, which looks like it's a pretty good chance that it might, the New England Patriots aren't winning the AFC East. Sorry. And guess what? The Miami Dolphins are a Deshaun Watson, Deshaun Watson's Watson trade away from um, really putting some heat on you. Again, take a look at the quarterback position. You have Cam Newton as your starting quarterback, and 
You didn't even address your backup quarterback. Newton, who hasn't played an entire season in years, if he goes down, what are you going to do? So I think this mindset that some New Englanders have that Belichick's got to get back. And look, you know, Bill's in this, look at me, Bill, like I know this man. Coach Belichick is in his upper 60s. So I can understand him saying, look, you know, I'm not really interested in the five-year build. I'm not really interested in tearing it down and rebuilding it again. Not really into that nonsense. You know, I already won mega bucks by getting Tom Brady with the uh, sixth-round draft pick. Not just at that position, but everything Tom Brady was. Wasn't a diva. Wasn't hard to uh, coach. Low maintenance. Cap-friendly every year. Didn't add for a ridiculous amount of money. You know, one of the greatest football players, one of the greatest quarterbacks who's ever lived. So I'm, I'm, I'm not hitting that again. That's not going to be happening to me again. Wish it would, but Tom Brady is not coming down for me to uh, draft and all of a sudden in year two of this win a, win a Super Bowl and get back to our place where we were. I've said this many times on podcasts when talking about the New England, New England Patriots. You guys, once in a lifetime, man. Not once in a, not just once in a generation, once in two or three year generations what you had in New England for 20 years. I don't care someone right now who's five years old. They can live to be 60 or they can be 60 years old, 55 years later. And there might not be be anything. Forget the NFL in sports as what was the dynasty for the New England Patriots. That 20-year dynasty, one of the greatest, if not the greatest run in North American sports, professional uh, team sports history what the Patriots did. They're not going to swing around and do that again. So my, my whole deal from saying all this is that, yeah, you, you guys upgraded on some places of need on your team. Great, fantastic. But this thing where, you know, Belichick is going gung-ho because he's just obsessed. Robert Kraft is just obsessed with um, those guys getting to a Super Bowl and winning it to show, to show Tom Brady or something like that, that he really wasn't, as important as he thinks he would think he was, not that he think that he did, but you know what I'm saying, is uh something I think that's ha ha he he ridiculous. But all of that stuff I'll talk about a little bit later on. Um, but uh, you know, time for us to talk some basketball, right? Time for us to talk about some NCAA tournament basketball, right? Time for us to talk about some March March Madness. Am I correct? Sweet sixteen, all of these things. Are you ready to go? Are you ready to go? Are you ready to go? I know I'm ready to go. What about you? You ready? Let's go. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Namaste. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Konnichiwa. Shalom. Que pasa, mi amigos. Bonjour. Bonsoir. Wendell's World in Sports. Yours truly, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Getting into the NCAA tournament. March Madness Sweet 16 is now set. 
And we get in the West region, we have the number one Gonzaga Bulldogs playing the Creighton Blue Jays, seeded number five, number six USC, who just put a uh, hmm, who just put a beat down on beatdowns against Kansas. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later on in this segment. But wow, USC, well, it's going to play Oregon, who's the number seven seed, the East region. Number one, Michigan. The Wolverines play the number four Florida State Seminoles. Nice job there, um, Leonard Hamilton. The number 11, UCLA Bruins. No, 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 no. Just because they're number 11 in the Sweet 16, UCLA, that's not a Cinderella story. Sorry, not with that coach and that talent. They're going to be playing the number two, Alabama Crimson Tide. Um, the South region, you have the number one Baylor. You know what I was talking about on my last podcast? I couldn't remember all of the number one seeds. I couldn't remember Guy Lewis, who was the coach of Faisalama Jamma at Houston, who, by the way, is going to also be in the Sweet 16. But um, I couldn't remember the four number one seeds. The one seed I forgot was Baylor. Well, Baylor is going to be playing in the Sweet 16 against the Villanova Wildcats. The number three Arkansas Razorbacks are going to be playing a true Cinderella in number 15, Oral Roberts. And then in the Midwest region, you have the number eight Loyola of Chicago playing number 12 seeded Oregon State. Wayne Tinkle, the real Cinderella number 12 from a big, big, uh, major power five conference, even though they're not. And uh, Syracuse, the number seeded, uh, 11 seed Syracuse is going to be playing Houston, by the way, guys, I mean, Bob Huggins and the coach for San Diego State, you guys have never seen a zone before? Seriously? I mean, Ronnie Sykley wasn't walking through that door. Pearl Washington wasn't walking through that door. Stephen Thompson wasn't walking through that door. Carmelo Anthony wasn't walking through that door. Derek Coleman wasn't walking through that door. Sherm Douglas wasn't walking through that door. How in the hell did you guys look so pathetic and lost, especially San Diego State? Your coach, you've never seen a zone before? I know, well, I mean, Syracuse with Jim Beheim playing zone. He's been playing zone for 40 years. There's no tape. There's no nothing that you saw with Syracuse in terms of, well, you know, you need more than a couple of days to uh, prepare for that zone. Come on, man. Come on. Look, I'm not saying San Diego State losing to Syracuse and the zone being a factor. I'm not saying that makes, I mean, he's not a bad coach. I mean, hell, he's a, He's a coach for a Division I team that makes the playoffs, that makes the tournament in San Diego State. So the man can coach, and the man knows a lot more about coaching, college coaching, and everything about that than I do. But my my question would be, geez, man, how in the hell did y'all, I mean, what did y'all, I mean, how much do we put on the coach? How much do we put on the players' coach? How much is this on you? I mean, how in the world did they look so unprepared and inept against that zone? Again, this is Syracuse, a team that barely got into the tournament, and they're making you look this bad? Was it just one of those days? Hey, man, you know, mama said there'd be days like this. There'd be days like this, my mama said. What was up with that? Nevertheless, Syracuse, with that zone, reaching the Sweet 16. Jim Beheim, I mean, he is a Hall of Famer. and won a boatload of games, not because he can't coach. So he's in the Hall of Fame and one of the greatest coaches in college basketball, at least over the last 40 years for a reason. So he's in the uh, Sweet 16 along with Houston. Kelvin Sampson now, that man can coach. And I'll go back to it again and again and again and again. Indiana, despite all the bullshit that Kelvin Sampson put you through in terms of the texting or whatever the NCAA violation he broke, wouldn't you love to have kept Kelvin Sampson as your coach? Because with the exception of one year of Tom Cream as your coach, 
What has Indiana done? What have they done? If Will Wade can still keep his job at LSU, if Sean Miller can still keep his job at Arizona, and while Sampson was accused of violations, it was nothing like what Wade and uh, Miller were doing, and they're still coaching their, their squads. I mean, in the end, if you had a do-over, you should have kept Kelvin Sampson. You should have kept Kelvin Sampson. You should have kept Kelvin Sampson. That man wins wherever he goes, even when he was the assistant coach with Kevin McHale at the uh, Houston Rockets. So they're going to be in the Sweet 16. So looks like a pretty good draw. Looks like a pretty good eight games to be played. When we speak about this year's, when we speak about this year's uh, March Madness and, and COVID, um, it reared its ugly head. Have to mention that that once again, COVID is still alive and well and fucking things up in terms of what's going down because the game between the Oregon Ducks and the Virginia Commonwealth University Rams had to be canceled because of COVID nineteen, an outbreak on the VCU team, which sucks. For VCU, you know, Oregon then moved on to the next round, beat Iowa in the round of 32, again, uh, propelling them to the Sweet 16. But, you know, VCU head coach Mike Rhodes said Saturday that the team had been tested daily for the past three weeks. I, I don't know if it's the nasal or what else, but if it's the nasal, that must really, like, suck beyond belief in terms of they had to go through that shit and then turn around and see this happen to them. But... They said that they had been tested daily for the past three weeks, but that multiple players tested positive in the last 48 hours. Now, there's speculation, of course, that, oh, you know, you go to Indianapolis and you're all bunked together and you're all, you know, in the same region and this, that, and the other. But, you know, speculation is that VCU, their players became infected in Dayton for their conference tournament that uh, past week at the Atlantic 10 tournament, not in Indianapolis. And this is some reporting by Matt Norlander of CBS Sports. Him and Gary Parrish do a college eye on college basketball podcast. They're pretty good at that. But according to Matt Norlander of CBS Sports, VCU stayed in a hotel that was open to the general public. And lo and behold, the hotel was quote unquote packed with people that were not, um, shall we say, respecting the safety protocols concerning the virus, i.e. not wearing masks not practicing social distancing, you know, all those fucking stupid motherfuckers who are down there right now for spring break in Florida, you know, going around like it was March 6th of 2020, not paying attention to this, not taking this seriously, being stupid, not using common sense, the same stupid-ass bullshit that's happening right now in Florida and probably all over this country is happening, happened during the conference tournament in Dayton. So you had all of these fans, VCU fans and Dayton fans and all these fans hanging around congregating without a mask, without practicing social distancing. And because of that, it cost VCU an opportunity to do some things in the, in the tournament. Now, were they going to go ahead and win the tournament? No. Are they going to be, were they in a position to where their A-10 brother in Dayton Flyers were last season? No. But, damn, man, you know, I, and life sucks. Sorry, guys, get used to it. But um, this is the worst thing that's ever going to happen to you in your lives. You guys are going to be the 12 or 15, 15 luckiest human beings who ever walked the planet. But there is some, like, that really sucks factor 
for these kids who tried to do everything right and no, through no fault of their own, once again, the quote-unquote adults fucked everything up for them. So, you know, sucks. More evidence that they caught the virus or the outbreak happened at the conference tournament, at the uh, tournament championship where VCU was playing was that the game in which VCU played in the conference championship that was refereed by Roger Ayers, well, he tested positive for COVID and told CBS that he struggled all week with the virus. So there's more evidence that if you wanted to uh, trace where this outbreak happened, it wasn't in Indianapolis. It wasn't, you know, at one of the NCAA venues out there in in Indiana. It happened at the A-10 conference tournament, so... It sucks, man. It sucks. Feel for those guys. But as I mentioned before, man, you know what? If this is the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your lives, you'll be the luckiest human beings who ever walked the face of the earth. And uh, look, in three months, two months, when the seniors on that team, where they when they go to pursue their dreams, whether it be playing basketball in the NBA or overseas or starting to get out there in the real world and starting to become a productive adult, Hey, man, in about six months, all this will pass, baby. And as you move on in life and you deal with all the other bullshit that life had to deal with this, that deal with, that you have to deal with in life, the missing the 810 tournament will not be uh, something where it's just like, oh, my God, I remember when this was horrible. This is the worst. So there you go, man. It's all about how do you handle the, the um, difficulties of life when you get kick down when you get pushed down do you get back up or do you just stay there and you just stay there and blame the government Wendell's World of Sports I'm your host Wendell Wallace so glad that you could be with us and of course in speaking about this though and I guess on one hand the NCAA is a little bit relieved that the Rams we you know this outbreak happened at a conference tournament and not on their site the biggest fear for the tournament is what to do about an outbreak on a team that is playing for that's playing in the final four in the championship game? It might be a long shot, it might be slim, but still it's out there because if a team member that's playing in the uh, I mean with the sweet sixteen is going to be happening in a couple of days. What happened when we find out that uh Lyle of Chicago all of a sudden have a couple of players that have uh the virus that's it they're done. And there ain't no prayer that Sister Jean can give that can make the virus go away within 24 to 48 hours. So the, the lingering fear is to have something what happened to VCU at the conference tournament to happen to them moving forward. The stakes get higher as you move forward. This happening to a VCU, the opening round of the tournament, sucks, but it's no big deal. The key is going to be what happens if that shit happened to Gonzaga the week leading up to the Final Four. What happens the day of the championship game, we find out that Michigan has three players that were around somebody who tested positive for COVID. What are we going to do here? Again, teams would have to be quarantined for at least 10 days of the positive test. So on Saturday, where the Sweet 16 is about to begin, I'm recording this on a uh, Wednesday. What happens tomorrow if we find out that, you know, heaven's sakes alive, um, Houston or Syracuse, they had a outbreak of COVID on their team because they're being tested on a regular basis. What's going to happen on a sweet 16? It's just going to be like, Oh, sorry, moving on, which I mean, it happens, but 
in the annals of everybody talking about this shit, it lends more toward the argument of asterisk toward the champion. Like, for instance, what did Oregon do to uh, get to where they are today? Yeah, they beat Iowa. Number two seed, fantastic, wonderful. But they didn't have to play a game because of what happened to VCU. You take a look at someone, a team like um, a team like Virginia. I mean, you can connect the dots. You can go Bill Curtis A&E investigative reports and do some uh, reporting and, and investigating and see that, you know what, Virginia, in all actuality, against Ohio, not against an... You know, a high-level club, not against one of the favorites of the tournament, but Virginia, who I believe was number, what were they, number three, number four in their seat? Well, they lost to Ohio. You you could kind of see that coming because they tested positive or they had an outbreak or something happened where they had to withdraw from the uh, ACC tournament because of the virus. Then they had to be quarantined. They didn't practice. They didn't get out of their rooms. They couldn't go and leave anywhere. Then you had to go straight from that situation over to play uh, play in a tournament where you had no preparation. You had no, I mean, you guys, the, the guys weren't running. The guys weren't conditioning. The guys weren't hardly doing anything. It, it, maybe they were, they were in their rooms doing push-ups or burpees or, or some type of aerobics or something like that. But you know, nothing can equate going out there and running up and down a court. They couldn't have any uh, film sessions together. They couldn't eat together. The camaraderie wasn't there because basically those guys were in their rooms. And as we know, this summer or this past summer and this past spring, we know how much it sucks being in our own capacity or in our own casas, in our own homes, and not being able to do anything, not being able to go anywhere. Right now, if I told you I'm going to put you in a hotel room for 10 days and you can't go anywhere, how's that going to affect you? It's going to affect you somehow, some way. And you guys aren't playing basketball. You guys aren't playing high-level basketball. I don't care what kind of place you put us in. I don't care what the swank is. You could put me in the swankiest, most unbelievable, fantastic hotel that there is. After three or four days of being in that room, I don't care how spacious, I don't care how wonderful, I don't care how fantastic it is, I'm going to go nuts! And these kids who were anywhere between the ages of 18 and 23 were subjugated to that. Then they got to go play a basketball game, a high-level basketball game against another quality basketball game where you have 12, 15 guys who are exceptional basketball players, exceptional enough that they earned a scholarship to a Division I school. And Virginia was put in that situation. Of course they were going to lose. Of course they were going to look bad. Of course we should have said that. Of course we should have seen that. But, you know, we really didn't take into account how devastating that was. So when you see Virginia opening up the game against Ohio going 5 or 20 from the field, that could be contributed attributed to not being able to practice for a week because they were quarantined. And then in the second half, Virginia missed 11 consecutive shots. They gave open looks to the Bobcats, who then went on a 16-2 run, gave them a 47-40 lead. And for the game, Virginia, yeah, they committed a season-low three turnovers. Fantastic, wonderful. But they shot a season-worst 35% overall and 26% from the three-point line. And this is a team that entered the game ranked second among the ACC in terms of uh, three-point accuracy at 38%. Yeah, everybody had a bad day. 
Everybody had the bad day at the office shooting-wise. But you can't tell me the ordeal that they went through didn't contribute to their shooting woes. So that's the main deal. So, you know, maybe from the final, maybe if you're the NCAA, you're a little bit nervous. You just want to hurry up and get a champion crown and moved on. And you want to do it in the most painless way possible. And you don't want to have something where on the week of the final four that you're going to be biting your nails because on Tuesday you found out that Gonzaga has a couple of players who had COVID. What are you going to do? Are you going to postpone it? Are you going to move on? You're just going to say, oops, sorry. Well, that's just the way it is. It looks like the team that you were playing is going to be in a championship game. <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. Cross your fingers, man. Cross your fingers. Because uh, the NCAA is going to need it. Wendell's World in Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So the main storylines the, of the tournament so far, other than COVID, has been what? The upset, right? Number 15 seeded Oral Roberts defeating Ohio State in overtime to become the first number 15 seed to take down the number two seed since 2016. I believe it, I know how that feels. I was witness. I was the uh, fan who witnessed Georgetown number two seed getting their asses whooped by Florida Gulf Coast in 2013, which essentially started the downfall, the collapse of the Georgetown basketball program to where it is now. Number one seeded Illinois lost to. Loyola of Chicago in the round of 32, home of the great Al Frederick Hughes. Look that man up, a great player from uh, that squad in the uh, mid-80s. Number 11, Syracuse, beat, as I mentioned before, the number 16, San Jose State in the opening round, then beat number 3, West Virginia on Sunday. I had no idea how San Diego State got to be the number 6 seed, just like I have no idea how BYU got to be the number 6 seed in their region. Interesting, very interesting. Florida, uh, excuse me, Oregon State, they were seeded number 12. That was the, the Florida, Oregon State was the other surprising number 12 seed from a major conference that won their conference tournament that was expected to make some noise in this tournament. That was the real deal. Everybody was up there squawking and gacking and talking about my team, the Georgetown Hoyas being number 12. They just won the uh, Big East Conference Championship, and Patrick Ewing's doing this, and Patrick Ewing's doing that, and these guys are on the roll, and they're playing great defense, and watch out for Oregon, and watch out for, excuse me, watch out for um, watch out for uh, Colorado, and this, that, and the other. And we saw that Georgetown, we, we, they were who they thought we were, at least who I thought they were. Uh, Oregon State took what Georgetown was supposed to be, and now they're in the Sweet 16. They beat number five, Tennessee, in the opening round before um, beating number four, Oklahoma State, and Kate Cunningham, as I mentioned before, moving on to the Sweet 16 this weekend. And here's something that's interesting that I want to talk about. Not so much about Abilene Christian, seated number 14, beating Texas. Abilene Christian, nice job getting your 15 minutes of fame. I hope this helped you with your enrollment. I hope this helped those who go out and recruit the students to come to your university. I hope that uh, this lends some power. Hopefully in the state of Texas, it will. Of course, they beat them in basketball, not football. If Abilene Christian beat Texas in football, woo! Man, those recruiters for those schools, they would be dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas. Well, but it was a terrible loss for Texas. Just terrible. You're going to lose to Abilene Christian? For reals? Texas was held to a season-low 52 points. They lost 53-52. Guy got fouled, a 50-something percent free throw shooter for Albert Lee and Christian, made two free throws for the victory. 
The Longhorns, as I mentioned before, 32, I'm sorry, 52 points. They committed a season-high 23 turnovers on that night. They were Georgetownish in their carelessness with the basketball. 23 turnovers. Now, Texas defense held Abilene Christie to 30% shooting, including 3 of 18 from the three-point arc. But you lost! <laughs> How do you... Shaka, man, I know you're hurting right now, and I'm not laughing at you. It's just... It's just ridiculous to me that how in the world do you hold this team, a team that you are miles better than, way more talented than, in your opinion, probably a much has a much better coach on the sideline for Texas. How in the world did you hold Abilene Christian to 30% shooting, 16% from the three-point line, and you only scored 52 points and you lost? If I told you, 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 that Texas was going to hold Abilene Christian to 30% shooting and 3 of 18 from the three-point mark, you would have said, yeah, Texas is going to win this game by 15 to 20. And I don't even follow Texas. I don't even like college basketball. But I know Abilene Christian. I know Texas. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. Embarrassing. Hugely embarrassing. Texas came into the tournament winners of five straight. They won the Big 12 Conference Tournament Championship. Yeah, I know. I know Kansas had the withdrawal. I know, I know. But still, a championship, the championship, screw that. No asterisk there. They're not going to, if that's in, <clears throat> excuse me, if that's in Shaka Smart's uh, contract that he, you know, gets a bonus for winning the conference uh, tournament, they're not going to uh, take that away because Kansas uh, came down with COVID. No. I want that check to be in the bank tomorrow. So... Look, man, all the positive accomplishments Shaka Smart had this season, down the drain. Down the drain in 40 horrible minutes of basketball against Abilene Christian. Yeah, they ended the season ranked number nine in the final AP poll, the first appearance in the final 10, and uh, since they were ranked number eight in the 2010-2011 season. So that's a 10-year span that they broke. Yeah, wonderful. They had seven wins against ranked opponents, just one shy of the school's single-season record. Yeah, great, wonderful. Mentioned before, won the conference tournament championship. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, wonderful, great. No one gives a fuck. No one cares. No one gives a fuck now if you're a true fan of Texas. Or not enough people really care. Shaka Smart is right back where he is in terms of his coaching attrition as far as his, you know, his, his future at the coach of the Texas Longhorns. He's right back where he was at the beginning of this season. None of that stuff matters after everything he did against Abilene Christian. If he would have made it to the Sweet 16 and lost, even if he would have made it to the round 32 and lost, and they just played a, a good game, or they scored more than 53 fucking points, or 52 points, uh, there, there, there might have been a little bit of, well, you know, any any day, you know, you never know, you never know. Based off of this, and you lose to in-state, they're not even your rivals. They're not even your little brothers. They're not even your sons. They're like, I don't know, they're like your bastard kid. Abilene Christian. And you're Texas. Unacceptable. Inexcusable. So, you know, you take a look at those who want Shaka Smart out. 
after six years into this era of Shaka in Texas, he's still searching for his uh, first NCAA tournament win during his tenure, and he's made the tournament three times, three times in now six, seven years. Rick Barnes was a lot better than that. I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't even know if he deserved to be fired. But he deserved to have some heat on him, big time. He's got two years left on his contract, and then he has a $7.1 million buyout if Texas wants to uh, wants to go ahead and do that. They're already paying one coach, Tom, uh, Tom Herman, to go away. Are, are the boosters going to... Uh, are the boosters going to go and, and, and pony up if the administration decides that, you know what, we would like to see Shaka Smart gone, but we just don't want to pay for that uh, buyout? Remember, if you remember, those fucking assholes who donate, the big-time donors and alumni to the Texas Athletic Program, they're all pissed off because the, the um, AD in the school was not making uh, the students or not making the uh, student-athletes Sit there for that bullshit Ion Texas tradition song that they sing after every game. So the donors are upset about that. You remember I was talking about that on my podcast that they're going to uh, stop donating to the athletic department until they, um, you know, put their foot down and demand that these kids, black, white, Hispanic, whatever, sit there and uh, sing, take part in that tradition. So if you're the AD and you want Shaka Smart out of there, and you don't want to have it come from the uh, coffers of anybody but those do- those donors. What do you do? And if you're the donors and you want Shaka Smart out of there, what do you do? I don't think he should be. Again, I don't think Shaka Smart should be fired. But I think that it should be, look, man, at the very least, you got to win an NCAA tournament game next year. I don't give a damn. I don't care about your excuses. I don't care about who's leaving. I don't care about who's turning pro. I don't give a damn. Don't care, don't care, don't care, don't care. Don't care that you finished in the top 10 this season for the first time in 10 years. Don't care that you set a school record for most victories over ranked teams. I don't care. Don't care. Don't care. Do not care. You have got to win an NCAA tournament game or else you are gone. No no discussion. No negotiation. No explaining. Win a game in the NCAA tournament or you're done. I can live with that. And I think Shaka could accept that. My thing, though, is... Now, Minnesota just hired themselves a basketball coach. I think it's Ben Anderson or something like that. If you're Marquette or Utah or DePaul, who just fired their basketball coach, and they're looking for a new coach, do you call Shaka Smart? And, or do you call Shaka Smart agent, I should say? And if you're Shaka Smart, is it time for you to move on? Is it time for you to look for a new gig? Is it time for you to go Tubby Smith in terms of what he did with Kentucky after 10 years? And he was like, you know what? I've had enough. I won them a national championship. Uh, Don't like the pressure. Don't like the expectations. Don't like how hard I have to work to maintain this job. So uh, I'm bouncing to Minnesota. See ya. If you're Shaka, do you do that? So like, for instance, Marquette. Biggie school. Good basketball history they're going to be on fox uh, uh, um, uh, fox sports every time they play you can see all their games so you can recruit kids from california texas maryland virginia all over the country doesn't matter you'll be able to get to see their games family members 
Marquette basketball town. You don't have to worry about any pro teams. The only thing they care more about, I guess, is the Packers. I would guess. But it's still a college town. You know, the expectations aren't ridiculous or through the roof with Marquette. You're not expected to win the Big East Conference every year. You're not expected to make the Final Four every other year. You're not expected to win the NCAA tournament once every four years. But then again, I don't I don't know anything about the facilities. But I know that Wojciechowski got seven years of pretty much mediocre basketball. He rode Marcus Howard in the Hauser Twins for a few years for uh, for a good deal. But Marquette has a pretty good squad coming back. It's been shown that if you're a good recruiter, that top 50, four- and five-star recruits will go to your campus. As I mentioned before, you have very good um, basketball history. They won themselves a national championship with uh, Bo Ellis and Al, and Al McGuire. If you're a Shaka Smart, do you take that job? Many people, people laugh about Utah. I mean, yeah, you got to live in Utah, which, you know, I mean, you know, might might not be the best thing, especially someone who's black. I mean, not not saying that, you know, they're going to walk down the street and people in Utah are going to be calling you nigger and, you know, abuse and destroy your house. But, you know, it is Utah. You're not going to be, ain't too many brothers out there in Utah. But, hey, you know what, man, if you, if that, doesn't bother you too much. I don't know Shaka Smart to know if it would bother him, but Utah is a really good gig. Utah has great facilities. It's a basketball crazy state. You can recruit there. Kids from California, Washington State, they'll go to that school. They, you, they'll, they'll pay you well. So if you're Shaka Smart, do you maybe reach out to Utah? If they're your, if Shaka Smart's your agent, do uh. Does your agent give them a call and say, are you interested? I'm interested. I'm interested to find out what happens. But still, just a terrible loss for Texas. And really, at least for the next, I don't know, 6 to 12 months, the situation with Shaka Smart, the relationship with the um, folks of Texas and with the basketball program, I guess you could call it a little bit murky. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Man, Kansas. What's up with that? Suffered the third worst beating in program history. Suffered their most embarrassing beatdown in NCAA tournament history for them. Losing by 34 to number six, uh, USC. No, not University of South Carolina. University of Southern California. Damn, what's up with that? Prior to Monday's game, Kansas had only suffered eight 30-point losses in their program's history. The most recent being in uh, 2014, where they lost 72 to 42 uh, Kentucky. USC made eight, uh, made 11 of 18 three-pointers, 13 of 24 overall outside the paint on Monday. Kansas on the other stand, on the other side was six for 34. Six for 34. Outside of the paint, Kansas was six of 30 flipping four. Rock Chalk Jayhawk? Uncontested shots, USC was a, was 22 or 39, including six of seven from the three point range for a total of 50 points. And Kansas sucked. <laughs> they, they, they were bad. They were bad. I can't. Wow. 
I, I knew this wasn't a typical Kansas team. I knew through the season that it was difficult. COVID, not having the type of players that they normally have when they're, you know, one of the nation's elite. But they still came into the tournament number three. They were still on a pretty good roll. But Bill Self said, basically, it was like, man, bad day for us to have one of our, it was a bad day for us to play one of the worst games that we've ever played and USC to play about as good as they could. So we couldn't play any worse and USC couldn't play any better. So when you uh, hit somebody who's at rock bottom going against a really, really good team who's playing sky high, this is what happens. A 34-point beatdown, which probably the score didn't even indicate how one-sided, lopsided, and embarrassing that beatdown was. Where, where are we with the Kansas Jayhawk basketball program? Where, where are we going now moving forward? I, I don't want to take too much into the, oh my goodness, people need to be fired and soul-searching and all that kind of... I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting into that, but I, I just want to ask you, I mean, you're, you're into Kansas basketball. I mean, you're into college basketball. What's, what's going on here with that team? Their last four NCAA tournament defeats have come by an average of almost 20 points on average, including this lost lost to uh, number six USC this tournament by 34 points 2019 they lost in the second round to Auburn who was seeded number five by 14 and 2018 they lost in the final four they lost in the final four now so but they lost at Villanova by 16 and that wasn't a game right from the jump Villanova was hitting everything from three-point range and Kansas never had a chance so Villanova, who was clearly the best team in college basketball. So how much can you take from that ass whooping in terms of what's going on with the program? But, um, yeah, they lost by 16 in 2018 in the Final Four to Villanova, who then won it all. And then they lost to Oregon in 2017 in the Elite Eight by 14 points. Oregon went on to the uh, Final Four. So... On one hand, you sit there and say, well, you know, 20-point margin of victory, you know, 20-point um, average of defeat. Okay, well, you know, if you take away the 34-point blowout by USC, all right, we're losing games by around 15 and a half, which isn't good, which isn't good, but, you know, let's, let's kind of put a little bit more context into the argument here in terms of what's wrong with the Kansas basketball program. Is there anything wrong with the Kansas Jayhawk basketball program? depending upon what your expectations are. My expectations are Kansas is one of the best basketball squads, best basketball programs in the country. That there's no way, no how. I, I can understand them, look, you know, going a little bit of a drought in winning the tournament, in winning the college basketball tournament. You know, Kentucky has won, won in the Calipari era. Well, he's won what, one? And he's had, I don't know, Calipari always likes to sit there and cackle about, you know, the, the billions of dollars that University of Kentucky players have made in the NBA and all these, how many five stars and how many McDonald's All-Americans. Well, damn, Cal, if you're so just like, just overwhelmed with talent, how the hell have you only won one NCAA championship and made the uh, Final Four a handful of times? Have you got players in this league who have combined to make over almost a billion dollars? I don't think Calipari should be fired from his job. Kentucky's won just as many NCAA championships as uh, as Kansas. So it depends upon what your definition is. If you're a diehard Kansas 
basketball program who expects this team to be ranked in the top six, top seven every year, expect to be making deep runs in the NCAA tournament. And if they are going to lose in the tournament, let it be in the final four or the final eight to a team that's just as uh, elite on the basketball um, uh, pantheon level as they are. And let it be a close or competitive game. When they lose, it ain't competitive in these tournaments the last four years. Not competitive at all. And during the look, Bill Self is a boss. I remember this is after when this is after when this is after Kansas won the um, the tournament. So it was 08. At the height of Bill Selfness, I mean, he was the man. He was the boss. He was the don. I was in a gym watching some AAU, AAU basketball every summer, every July. The Nike and Adidas camps um, held their uh, tournaments out here, so. I wanted to go out and take a look and see some um, Georgetown prospects up close. So I went over to uh, Foothill High School where the games were being played. And you had Lorenzo Romar and you had all these coaches, you know, hanging around there watching. The, you, had, you had games going on in the auxiliary gym. You had the main games going on in the main gym. So, you know, the coaches were meandering and lingering throughout the courts, you know, taking a look at the prospects and, hanging out and talking to each other and this, that, and the other. So, you know, all the main coaches were there. I didn't see, I didn't see Krzyzewski or Calipari or those guys, but, you know, the, the, the top 20 basketball guys, you know, you saw them with their college shirts, with their uh, school, you know, on their, on the collar and all this kind of stuff. So I'm there, and I'm talking to a guy who's a recruiter from the University of Nebraska, like, a, like an assistant, assistant, assistant coach. And we're breaking down some guys and talking to some talk we're talking to each other. And Bill Self comes walking into the gym. And it was like there was an aura of Bill Self where it was like the motherfucking man is in the house. And that's how Bill Self carried himself. And that's how the other coaches, head coaches, treated him. Like the motherfucking boss is here. Like the fucking man is here. And you just and you just felt that shit. You felt it. It was like, it was like, damn, I want to play for that motherfucker right there because that motherfucker is a goddamn boss. And all the other coaches knew it. That's when he was riding high in 08. So Bill Self is the man. Bill Self is a Hall of Famer. Bill Self can coach, no doubt about it. But if you take a look at Bill Self during the era that that he's been the coach of Kansas, 2004 to now. So we're talking about 18 years, 17, 18 years. The lowest seed that Kansas had been during his era has been number four in the tournament, in the NCAA tournament. He was been the number four seed three times in 2004 when he first got the gig, 2006 when he was still trying to you know, establish his way of playing, his recruits, bringing in his new recruits. So Look, he was a number four seed playing with Roy Williams' kids in 04. Same thing in 06. And then in 2019. So there was about a 13, 14-year layoff that um, Kansas was nothing but a one, two, or three seed. And during that time, that Bill Self has been the coach at Kansas, that university's basketball program has been the number one or two seed 11 times. So what I'm trying to say is is that Kansas has been the shit of college basketball for a long time. Krzyzewski has won multiple championships. Brad Stevens and Butler 
has gotten the uh, had got their program to as many final games as Bill Self. I mean, there's been some things going on. Jay Wright has won what two or three championships um, during that time period, and again, I, I hate to say that Bill Self has quote unquote only won one because if you win a championship, man, that's shit. You the man. Fuck that bullshit. You are the man. But still, this is Kansas. And he's had some bad losses in the tournament, man. I'm not going to lie. He's lost to a number 14 seed in Bucknell. He's lost to a number 13 seed, Bradley. He got he lost in the Elite Eight to a number 11 VCU coached by Shaka Smart. He lost in the second round in the tournament against a number 10 seed, Stanford, when he had Andrew Wiggins on that team. When he was the number one seed in the entire tournament, he lost in a round of 32 to Northern Iowa. Winning that championship. So basically winning that championship. Same thing with Gary Williams. When Gary Williams finally won a championship with Maryland. And everybody everybody before that, all the coaches would tease him. Like, hey, Gary, when are you finally going to win a championship? Couldn't do it with Steve Francis either, huh? Jeez, man. So 2008 saved Bill Self from a lot of grief. From a lot of second guessing, I mean, what would be what would be, be if Mario Chalmers didn't save his ass and Derrick Rose was able to hit free throws? What would be what would we be talking about Bill Self now after this loss to USC and he didn't win that championship in 08? Best coach never to win an never to win an NCAA championship, underperforming, disappointing. I don't know. He's made the final game. He's lost. He's lost to a better team, no doubt. He's made a Final Four. But, I mean, can that 08 championship take away from some of the embarrassing losses? And this was embarrassing. I, I'm not saying you fire the guy or anything crazy like that, but I, I, I just, I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea what you do with uh, Bill Self. And we're still waiting for a ruling from the NCAA about possible rules violation with Kansas. Oh, yeah, y'all forgot about that, huh? Yeah. Let me go ahead and remind you, they've been accused of multiple one-level violations in charge of a lack of institutional control and head coach responsibility because it was alleged that Bill Self and his assistant Curtis Townsend embraced, welcomed, and encouraged Adidas employees and consultants to influence high-profile basketball recruits to sign with Kansas. Y'all remember, I think the uh, player was uh, Kalina, uh, who was the big man? The big man who was uh, drafted either late in the first round this last uh, draft period or early in the second. I want to say Izabuke. Oh, I want to say the big man Izabuke. Big, strong guy who couldn't hit free throws. Um, but yeah, and a couple of others. I, I, if it wasn't him, it was somebody to where it was like, man, you're giving, you're, you're, you're putting yourself in jeopardy. You're putting the school in jeopardy of getting put on probation over this guy? That was almost as bad as uh, Bettino Basically ending his career at Louisville over, what was that kid's name? Brian Bowen? Bruce Bowen? Not the Bruce Bowen who won championships with the San Antonio Spurs. But remember the Bowen kid who couldn't play and then he went to uh, try and play in the uh, G League and he couldn't do it? And I don't know what country he's playing basketball in now. But uh, it's like, man, coach, you're going to you're going to um, put your job at the head coach at Louisville in jeopardy over this kid? Look, if I'm going to go out 
And if I'm going to go down, I'm going to get caught cheating trying to give a boatload of money to a Zion Williams or to a Chet Holmgren or to an Imani Bates. Someone of that nature. Someone who can basically turn my program around. I mean, if I'm going to go down, if I'm going to lose my job, if I'm going to be embarrassed, that's what I'm going up. That That's what I'm going down with. I ain't going down with some three or four star recruit. No, I'm going down with a one and done. And Bill Self put that program in jeopardy over some kid where it's like, yeah, you know what? If, if we found out, found out that you bent over backwards to do everything that you could, breaking rules to get Andrew Wiggins at the time was supposed to be a transcendent basketball player at Huntington Prep in West Virginia to go to your school. If you break every rule violation, if you back up, you give him Fort Knox and a couple of cars and a couple of hookers and a couple of yachts and a couple of mansions and a couple of other materialistic things to get that guy to play one year based on what his reputation was in high school and you get caught and you get fired and the Kansas program goes up in flames, worth it, understood, can't get angry at you because if you wouldn't, someone else would have. So maybe instead of... uh LSU and Will Wade giving him $500,000 or Sean Miller giving him $750,000, two cars, a couple of hookers in a, in a, in a, in a, in a place in Monte Carlo in downtown Vancouver. Bill Self says, shit, fuck that bullshit. Let's up the price to a million. We'll give him seven cars. We'll give him a place not only in Vancouver, but also Toronto, Hawaii, Maui, and anywhere else where he wants to go. If I'm going to get caught going out like that, can't get mad at you. Can't get angry at you. Now, I can't get angry at the administration for not firing a louse like a Will Wade and Sean Miller. How well did DeAndre Ayton do for you, Sean? How did that year work out for you, Sean? But, man, to be put on probation or be putting, the, putting your basketball program in the position that it's in right now over is a bouquet type of a player? Come on, coach. <laughs> I don't know what we had to do to get Aminu Muhammad, speaking of Georgetown. But, you know, Georgetown, John Thompson, what are you going to do? Don't let basketball control your life. You know, 98% people graduate who played for Coach Thompson and all this type of stuff. Hey, man, if we had to cheat our asses off to get Aminu Muhammad, If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Damn right. If we have to cheat our asses off to get Chet Holmgren and Patrick Baldwin, do it. Do it. Because when dinner comes, are you going to be sitting at the table eating the meal? Or are you going to be the meal? So, there you go. So, I don't know, man. I don't know about the deal with Kansas. I, I really don't. What's going to happen to them? Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Just to end this discussion about college basketball in the uh, Final Four, at least in this segment. Hey, the good news for the tournament, there are three of the top four seeds still playing. Gonzaga, Michigan, and Baylor, right? And then a decent number of Cinderella's mid-major teams that are still in the tournament, Oil Roberts and Loyola Marymount. So there's still a possibility where I think as far as what would be best for college basketball, what would be best for the TV ratings, what would be best for the the advertising partners of CBS and everybody else would have a final four of Gonzaga, Michigan, Baylor, and Loyola of Chicago. And what would be 
awesome. And I think would be the best for college basketball, creating interesting storyline from it, try to get people interested, get the conversation going. The best thing for college basketball would have would be to have a championship game between Gonzaga and Loyola. I think that would be best for college basketball. And speaking of players and programs and Coaches who are helping themselves, because we do this every year. What player helped down himself, his draft status? What team put themselves in the position to be heard from next year and years to come? What coach at a mid-major or low-major put himself in the position to get a higher-paying, higher-profile job? All of the things are discussed in the tournament. But there has been one shining superstar so far in this tournament again. And his name is, I'll tell you after we boogie. We are the winners, watch us glimmer, like the sun for the champion. We're the joy, body and soul. We push ourselves to the maximum, the champions, the champions. We are the champions. World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Woo! We are the wheel. We're the champions. The champions. The champions. I'm uh, playing the song because this is going to be my um, new aerobic workout that I'm going to be doing right in, right here in my humble abode on my in my townhome in Northwest of Las Vegas. Um, the only reason why I saw a, a Key and Peele skit with this song and they were doing aerobics and it's like the song kind of got to me a little bit so I just YouTubed it I mean you know I watched the Kid and Peele skit on YouTube so they had the actual song being played and they had it from the National Aerobics Championship bullshit from 1986 to 1990 around the same time when I used to be somewhat of an athlete so I was watching this stuff and it guess you know these all of these aerobic people come out and they're doing their little, you know, dancing routine and this, that, and the other. It's an aerobics uh, uh, deal. So I'm sitting up there and I'm thinking to myself, damn, you know what? When I was their age, during that time, 1986 to 1990, when I was in my, what, mid-teens to just starting my 20s, I could have, I could do that shit. All the stuff that they're doing, 90% of that stuff I could do. Now, some of the choreography was a little bit, you know, but just in terms of the jumping and the moving and the grooving and the kicking and the punching and the hands raising and all that stuff that they were doing and the amount of time that they were doing it, I used to take aerobics. I mean, I played basketball, played basketball at the collegiate level. And uh, even after my playing days were over, I still took aerobics. I still did aerobics, you know, the cardiovascular and all that stuff. So I was just watching that stuff and I look at how fat and pathetic and sloppy and what a loser as far as athlete that I am. Now here I am in my early 50s and that shit is just gone, gone, gone. So I said to myself, you know what? To lose 
this belly fat, not all of it, but a lot of it, for me to lose this stuff, because right now I'm not yet ready to go back to the gym to do uh, body pump and body attack and lift weights and all those type of things. I'm so out of shape that I want to get my core right, you know, because if I'm doing good mornings and back exercises, you know, I don't want to injure my back. My family, I have a, you know, I have a family history of folks who have bad backs, Dad had back surgery, mom's had back surgery, my relatives have had back surgery, so I'm very cautious. I'm very, you know, about, about, about my back. So I just want to get my core right, so I've been doing a lot of walking again, walking up hills, trying to get that core, trying to get my hips and everything correct. So one of the things I'm going to incorporate, because I really don't feel like walking five, six miles a day like I've been doing, um, I want to uh, get into the aerobics a little bit. And I'm not doing 60 minutes. I mean, you heard that music that was going on? Try doing that for five minutes. Get your fat, lazy, out-of-shape ass up. Put on that put on that music or put, go to YouTube and play that whatever. And try to, don't even try to do what they're doing. Just do the basics. Do a couple of kicks. Do a couple of punches. Just do a couple of step ones and twos. You know, do a couple of leg lifts. Do a couple of kicks. You know, do that do that for five minutes and see how you feel. It's just it's just like when I used to shadow box. And you know, when you first start out shadow boxing, you know, when you don't know any better, what do you do when you shadow box? Everybody does the Ali. Everybody wants to, you know, do the do the shuffle and, you know, up on their toes and do that type of nonsense until about forty five seconds in and you're like <gasps> How much time do I have left? Two more minutes. Fuck. So you just learn how to, you know, do the uppercut, do the uppercut, do the cross, do the cross, jab, jab, double jab, you know, move and this, that, and the other. Just do the basic, simple. I learned the basic, simple art of shadow boxing for three to four minutes. Good enough. That'll be more than enough. And I don't, I don't need to do the Muhammad Ali float like a butterfly sting like a bee routine. That shit don't work. So that's my deal, man. Trying to get back into a little bit of shape. Trying to get back to the baseline of where I can go back to the gym and start working on the strength, start working on the bench, start working on the curls, start working on those type of things to start building the strength. But before that, I have to uh, get my core done. So, yeah, man, that's what that music was all about. We are the wheel, we're the champions, the champions, the champions. Listen to that and tell me that you won't be at work the next day singing that shit just out of the blue. Okay, here. Okay, yeah, all right. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll be with you. In, I'll be with you in just a second. I just gotta get this done. All right, thank you. We are the wheel. We are the champions. The champions. The champions. We are the wheel. We are the. What the hell am I doing singing that song for? I I guarantee you, you'll be doing that. I guarantee it. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Quickly, let me go ahead and talk about what I wanted to talk about in terms of with the NCAA tournament finish off. My discussion about that, because every year there's a champion, but every year there's someone who also wins, even though they might not win a championship. It might be a program, it might be a player, it might be a coach. And sometimes what the coach or what the player or what the program does, not winning a championship is more fruitful or is just as important as winning the championship. There's programs, players, and coaches who help themselves out tremendously every year in this tournament. I was hoping, I was hoping that Cade Cunningham would go ahead and do a Danny Manning, would go ahead and do a Carmelo Anthony, go ahead and do a Kemba Walker, 
go ahead and do a dead picnic, go ahead and do something in terms of this kid who's supposed to be the number one player in this upcoming NBA draft, do something spectacular in March for the uh, Oklahoma State Cowboys and reaching them to the Elite Eight or to the Final Four or something. I think Cunningham missed a golden opportunity to bring some real attention and some shine and some swag and momentum into the association with a deep run in the tournament. I know Vegas Summer League, if we're going to be doing the Vegas Summer League, how great would it have been to have Kate Cunningham go on this magical run to lead his team to the NCAA championship or lead his team to the Final Four? He gets drafted by, I don't know, whether it be the Detroit Pistons or my Washington Wizards, God, please, or, you know, one of the bad teams in the NBA and they go to Vegas and ESPN is putting that shine on him and he's still glowing from the performance that he had in the NCAA tournament. Would have been nice. Would have been great for the association. LeBron can't play forever. And it would be nice, you know, to help out Zion here because a lot of the stars are Europeans. They're not Americans. If you speak of Embiid, if you speak of Luka, if you speak of Giannis, if you speak of Nikola, if you speak of a lot of those guys, you know, a lot of the best players in the league are not European. And this is supposed to be a Boris's game, right? So it would be nice now, you know, to have another sensation coming to the league that ESPN can hype. They missed the opportunity with LaMelo Ball because LaMelo was out there in Australia playing basketball, so he was off the radar. And while he was part of the ball nonsense that LaVar put together, hey, he did teach his sons how to play basketball. Lonzo might have fizzled in terms of someone where the NBA could kind of market around, but the youngest ball can ball. And unfortunately, he broke his wrist, but you know, he didn't come in with that momentum. He didn't come in with that shine. He didn't come in with that reputation. He didn't come in with, uh, the, mo- with the momentum that he could have had, which could have really helped out, especially with him being drafted by Charlotte, even if he would have been drafted by Minnesota. Those are some teams that need that recognition. If he went to the Lakers, big deal. Everybody's going to watch the Lakers. They got LeBron. If he's going to the Knicks, would have been nice, but, you know, the Knicks are the Knicks. So for him to go to a smaller market, helps out the NBA because you need players who are like all-star superstars, much watch and more than just the big markets. And not, not, not every superstar can play for the Clippers, the Lakers, the Knicks, the Nets and the Chicago Bulls and the Miami Heat. So Kate Cunningham, who in all likelihood is going to be drafted by a small market team could have really helped out the NBA, helped out the association and helped out that franchise. If he would have uh, done something magical. But he didn't. He was decent. He was all right. They lost to Oregon State, the number 12 seed. He had 24 points, four rebounds, three assists. But he shot six for 20 from the field. He was 4-11 from the three. And then in the first round matchup against Liberty, he had 15 points, five rebounds, one assist, and shot three for 14 from the field. Two of eight from the three. Hmm. 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 Again, he's going to be the number one pick overall in the upcoming draft. He'll get better. He'll get stronger. He'll get in the gym, be more consistent on the jump shot. And, you know, him being a basketball player is is there. He has a sense of, he has a sort of genius in terms of uh, being a basketball player, the way he sets up other folks. And, you know, Jalen Green is a tremendous athlete, but he's been off the radar playing in the G League. Jalen Scruggs is a good player, 6'4", point guard skills. But I just think in a situation like this, Kate Cunningham 
is not only being he's not an uber athlete, good athlete, but not elite, not super, but sort of a cross between, I would say, Jason Tatum-ish, and I don't even know who else to put in there with him. You know, he's just a Brandon Roy-ish, I think somewhere around there as, as a player. Someone who's not going to overwhelm you with athleticism, but his knowledge of the game, his overall skill of the game. He's not super elite in one category, but he's not. He doesn't have a weakness in another, especially if you're speaking about offense. Defense is another story. Possibly every rookie is going to struggle in the NBA, but just in terms of what he can do offensively, I don't see any real weakness. There's no major strength, but no real weakness. So Cunningham is still going to be the number one player chosen, I believe, but it would have been nice for him to have a super march to uh, bring that shine. So, you know, that's the opportunity for players going into the tournament. Evan Mobley for USC helped himself out a great deal, even though his brother might have had a better offensive game. When you're speaking about a guy against Kansas, a blue blood, and the 34-point beatdown that they put on the Jayhawks, and Mobley's going for 10 points, 13, 14 rebounds, and three block shots. That's impressive. Jalen Scruggs for Gonzaga as Gonzaga continues to uh, march its way to the uh, Sweet 16 and beyond. You don't think if Gonzaga's going to win the championship with Scruggs being one of the major players on that team, that's not going to help his draft status. That's not going to help him in terms of marketing. That's not going to help him in terms of notoriety. That's not going to help him in terms of jersey sales being uh, sold when he becomes part of the association. So these are all springboards. These are all platforms for certain players to get themselves into a better position to be drafted, to start building their brand. It's almost like a, a boxer coming off uh, when, he, when he goes pro. Would you rather see, if you're a boxer, you would much rather have, I guess back in the day really, a boxer coming into the pro game after winning a gold medal in the Olympics than someone where, yeah, he's a golden glove champ and all this kind of stuff, but we really don't know too much about him. You know, how much did Sugar Ray Leonard get? when he won the gold medal at the uh, 76 Olympics and got that shine from Howard Cosell. His career was set up, and he took advantage of it, and he made a boatload of money doing it. So, you know, that's the situation which can happen for players as far as the NCAA tournament is concerned, and also for programs. As I mentioned before, you don't think Oral Roberts, the the, the basketball program and the school itself, is now going to benefit from this? Going on in the future, you don't think their coach now is going to be getting some interest as far as some upper-tier schools that he wants to take advantage of that opportunity? Of course. Of course it is. So, yeah, Oral Roberts might get blown out in the next round or they might lose. You don't think that Brown and some of these other teams, or excuse me, Ohio and some other teams that got that lost in the second round, you don't think their coaches right now are sitting there saying, hey, you know what? Good building block for me. At the very least, he gives them a raise, right? At least he gives them a position to A, maintain their job, B, give themselves a raise or an extension, and C, get their name in front of those who can um, increase their pay raise and increase the possibilities of them moving up to the next level and possibly getting to a program where they can compete for real for an NCAA championship, or at least put them in a better position to garner more talent to compete for championships in college basketball. So, the tournament is more for a lot of teams than just winning the champ- the championship. 
I mean, Jay Wright wins another championship. What does that mean? I mean, it'll be great. It'll be wonderful, but he's won three of them. So, you know, zip de dee doo da zip de dee day Especially if he's not interested in going to the NBA. So, you know, what's going to be the deal? Mark Few will, if he wins the championship, will put his name up there with the, uh, with the greatest of the greats of our era. Especially in terms of what he did with a Gonzaga basketball program that, you know, before Diane Monson got there, was John Stockton, and that's about it. No one else knew about him. So there's storyline for every coach. There's storyline for every team. I think the best storyline coming out of this tournament, though, so far has been, of course, the Loyola of Chicago basketball program. And I'm telling you this right now. This could be the beginning of the next Gonzaga Bulldogs type of program in college basketball. What do I mean by that? I mean a team that was a mid-major that now has the potential to become a basketball power, right up there with the Dukes and the Kentuckys and the North Carolinas and the Villanovas and the and the Kansases and the how, uh, Michigan States, right up there in the next seven to ten years, just like Gonzaga did. Ten years ago, no one was equating Gonzaga with the elites of college basketball. Even with them getting the Dan Dickows and getting the Adam Morrisons of the world. There were always that little that little mid-major school from the WCC that could. And golly gee, they would beat a team, they would beat a higher-ranked team, and ooh, what a wonderful story in this little Jesuit school from Spokane, Washington. Isn't that cool? Isn't that a wonderful story, this, that, and the other? Now, if Gonzaga loses in the round of 32, it's a, I'm not just, I'm not just talking about this year, I'm talking about as a program for the next 5, 10, 15 years, as long as Mark Few is going to be the coach of that team, Gonzaga now is no longer the, oh, what a nice little team that could earn an upset or two win the NCAA tournament. No, 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 no. Now Gonzaga has put themselves in a position from nice little mid-major school to a team that expects to be contending for the national championship on a regular basis. Not every four years, not every six years, almost every year. At the very least, make it to the Sweet 16 or the Elite Eight every single year. Viola of Chicago is putting themselves in that position for, I don't know, maybe at the very earliest, 2024, 25, to start to become that program where, you know what, reaching the the Sweet 16 is no longer a big deal anymore. You know, this wonderful sister Jean bullshit, that's no longer needed for people to be uh, interested in Loyola of Chicago or the people who, did, who know to know who Loyola of Chicago is. We don't need the sister Jeans of the world. We don't need cute little stories. We don't need that bullshit. Their basketball resume, their basketball prowess, their basketball eliteness as a program speaks for itself. So I think they're right on the cusp of doing that. So this is the fifth time that Loyola has advanced to the Sweet 16 in program history. Second time in the last three seasons, full seasons, that has made made it this far. If you remember in 2018, the Ramblers of Loyola was in the 11th seed. They went all the way to the Final Four. Um, they did it by beating the number th- 6, 3, 7, and 9 seeds before losing in the uh, Final Four to John Beeline and Michigan. So I think in a situation like this, the Loyola of Chicago, you take a look at small small Jesuit schools, private institutions in major markets do well in college basketball. Have that opportunity to do well in college basketball. So look, if you're a diehard, passionate, love until you die, 
University of Indiana basketball fan, and you guys are up there screaming, we want Brad Stevens, we need Brad Stevens, a good guy, we want Brad Stevens, Brad Stevens. Hey, man, y'all, stop dreaming about Brad Stevens. Brad Stevens isn't walking through that door. Unless he's coming, you know, he has an off day because the Pacers, because the uh, Boston Celtics started in Indiana to play play the Pacers, and he might have a little time to go to Bloomington to uh, maybe watch a game. That's the only time Brad Stevens is walking into the arena. That's the only time there's going to be a connection between Brad Stevens and Indiana University. Just because the man was born in the state doesn't mean he's destined to be the coach of that basketball team because he did such a great job at Butler. Brad Stevens, guys, is an NBA coach. He ain't going back to college. I guarantee you, if the Boston Celtics did something really silly between this year and the next five years and got rid of Brad Stevens, believe you me, Brad Stevens would be one of the hottest commodities in the NBA as far as coaching availabilities is concerned. Brad Stevens is not going back to college. Forget it. So Indiana fans, stop it. Stop it. What, what do we need Brad? What can we do to get Brad? Nothing can you do to get Brad. Nothing. Zero. You're better off trying to go after Mike Woodson or Thad Mata or Dan Fife or Dane Fife. You're not getting Brad Stevens. But you know who you should be begging for. You know who you should be praying for. You know who you should be begging and praying to the basketball guy to get them to answer your prayers. The coach that you need to be getting is Loyola Chicago coach Porter Moser. That's the guy you need to be going after. That's the guy you need to be backing up the Brinks truck to. That's the guy you need to say, give me an offer that you cannot refuse. What is the most ridiculous offer that you can offer us? And I'll take that offer and I'll go to every single alumni, donor, whoever, who's ever been associated. I'll go to Mark Cuban, beg on my hands and knees to say, please, for God fucking sakes, please do what we need to do to meet the demands, the financial demands of Porter Mosier to become our coach. That's the attitude. That's the direction. Passionate, die till you'll, you know, live till you die, Indiana basketball fans need to be doing. You take a look at the resume of Porter Mosier, 2011. He was hired at Loyola, which at the time was a member of the Horizon League at the, uh, you know, at the time. He, over two seasons, look, he started off slowly. Finished, uh, Loyola finished 11 and 39, 6 and 28 in the league play. But when the Ramblers joined the Missouri Valley Conference beginning of the 2013-14 season, then we started to see the emergence of, of this basketball program or the resurgence of this basketball program. As I mentioned before, they made the tournament, I believe it was in 1985, where they lost in the round of 32 to who? You're goddamn right, my Georgetown Hoyas. But uh, so the resurgence really started at the beginning of the 2013-14 season and their second season in the uh, Mountain, in the Missouri Valley Conference. They finished 24-13 and 13 and won the College Basketball Invitational Postseason Tournament. Then three seasons later in 2017-18, they made the tournament run to the Final Four, as I mentioned, as an 11th seed. They beat Miami, Florida. They beat Tennessee, Nevada, Kansas State before losing to Michigan in the national semifinal. And then the next two seasons, still doing well. Finished 20-14 uh, and 2018-19 and 21-11 and in 2019-2020. And, and now... We have this run right here for what he's doing. Now, the question I would have to ask um, um, uh, the coach for um, 
Ooh, the name escaped me for uh, Porter Mosier here on Wendell's World and Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. My question would be, hey, man, what do you want to do, coach? Do you want to have the same legacy at Loyola of Chicago that Ray Meyer has at DePaul, Jerry Tarkanian has at UNLV, John Thompson has at Georgetown, John Cheney has at Temple, Mark Few now has at Gonzaga, Raleigh Massimino had at Villanova, Lou Carnesecca had at St. John's, Jim Calhoun had at Connecticut. Do you want to see, do you want to be that guy that puts and is responsible for having Loyola of Chicago be that powerhouse? So whenever you do decide to retire, God willing, 10, 15 years from now, that you have Loyola in a place to where, guess what? It just ain't the University of Illinois that is the top team in the state of Chicago, in the state of Illinois. It's Loyola. It ain't DePaul. It ain't uh, Illinois. It's Loyola of Chicago. Do you want to be that guy? Because let me tell you something. When Ray Meyer took over for DePaul, or when Ray Meyer became the coach of DePaul years and years and years and years and decades and decades and decades and decades ago, it was putrid. When Jerry Tarkanian took over at UNLV, it was nothing. When John Thompson took over at Georgetown, they were 3-23 and and completely irrelevant. When John Cheney took over at Temple, they were nothing. When Mark Few took over at Gonzaga, Don Monson got that thing started, but they were still the little mid-major that could. When you took, when you take a look at Rolling Massimino at Villanova winning that championship and bringing Villanova to prominence to put it on a platform to build a program to where Jay Wright can have the success that he's doing now, that's because of Massimino. Lou Carnesecca at St. John's, what he did for that team, not just in the 70s, but also in the 80s. Uh, Jim Calhoun setting up his program to where one of his players, Kevin Ollie, can take over and continue to have Connecticut be a uh, strong basketball program. Porter Mosier can do that for Loyola, Mary, uh, for Loyola Chicago. How much money are they going to pay him to do that? I don't know. What are his intentions? I don't know. Married children? I don't know. But if he does have a wife and children, how much do they love living in the Chicago area? How much is he wanting to move? I don't know. How much does money mean to him? I don't know. How much does legacy mean to him? I don't know. But that would be my example. And, and, and sometimes the grass isn't always greener on the other side. Sometimes, you know, building this resume with your intention to take that next step and move from this mid-major to now a power conference to where I can have a real opportunity to win championships. Hey, this is not college football. This is college basketball. You can be a mid-major school and be invited to the dance, as he has known very well, as, as Mosier has known very well. This isn't college football, where if they select few, make it to the uh, tournament, uh, make it to the college football playoffs, and if you're not from a major Division Five Power Five conference, then forget about it. There is no such thing as a Loyola of Chicago in college football. There is no such thing as Gonzaga in college football. There is no such thing as a Villanova in college football. Because if college basketball had the same criteria to, to uh, crown their champion as college football, well, then the same teams would be in the discussion almost every single year. Duke, Kentucky, North Carolina, Michigan State. In Kansas, that would be it. You would have a conglomerate of about five or six teams. They would play in the Final Four, and that would be it. So a team or a program like Gonzaga would even, never even have a chance to build. 
A team like Georgetown, a program like Georgetown, would never have a chance to build. A program like UNLV would never have a chance to build if we played by the same rules in college basketball as we did, as we do in college football. So if you're a Porter Mosier, you can, you can become the Mark Few. You can become, you can have Loyola of Chicago be the Gonzaga of the Midwest. Fertile recruiting grounds. You're right there in Chicago. You got the Midwest. Yeah, you're going up against Michigan State, but Tom Izzo isn't going to be coaching forever. There's already rumbling that there's a whole lot of NBA teams that are trying to do everything they can to get Jawan Howard back into the uh, league this time as a head coach, not just as, as an assistant coach. Uh, you know, Chris Holtman is a really good coach at Ohio State. But yet still, you take a look around. As I mentioned, Tom Izzo isn't going to coach forever. He's in his mid-60s. How long is he going to keep it up? Is there anybody else out there in that region, in that area of the country, that if you really think about it, if Gonzaga can outwork teams like Washington and teams from the Pac-12, to get players, you can also do it in the Midwest where your competition is Illinois, Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State. What are you going to do with your Porter Mosier? Ask Dan Munson, who left Gonzaga for greener pastures, if it was worth it. I think he went to Long Beach State. I think he went to either Minnesota, then Long Beach State, or something like that. Ask, ask uh, Dan Monson how was it to leave Gonzaga right when he got them rolling because he thought that he could go to a school in a bigger conference to a win a championship. Ask Shaka Smart, who left VCU. Smart has a lot more success as the coach when he was the coach at VCU than he than, than he had so far for Texas. Ask how that's working out for him. Just think you gotta think about these things, man. Sometimes mid-major powerhouses are better than the quote unquote Good programs in the Power Six conferences that become available. Speaking about it here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. I mean, take a look at the Big Ten. If you're Porter Mosier, if you go to, um, Penn State already hired a coach, but if, if, if you go to, say, for instance, say, um, Minnesota already hired the coach. <sighs> Northwestern is, I mean, you can't win at Northwestern. But if, if you go to one of their programs, are you going to be able to consistently compete with Tom Izzo, Chris Holtman, Jawan Howard at Michigan, and live up to the expectations? Like, for instance, you go to Indiana. Are you going to be able to live up to those expectations year after year after year? Because they've seen what you've done in Loyola, Chicago, so they're going to be thinking, you know what, if he can do this at Loyola, Chicago, why in the hell can he get us to the Elite Eight? Final four and top 10 finishes every year. Are you going to be able to consistently compete with the five-star recruits from the Midwest, with the Izzos and the Holtzmans and the Jawan Howards year after year after year? Are you going to be able to pull up with that pressure of, hey man, you know, it's been three years and you've only gotten us to the Sweet 16. What's going on? At Loyola, Chicago, they'll build a statue for you if you had that type of success. And in the end, they'll put your ass on the hot seat. Are you willing to deal with that bullshit? And the ACC, what what program in that conference, Porter, can you take that can compete with the Dukes and North Carolinas of the world? Many people have tried to do it at NC State, Wake Forest, Georgia Tech, 
Danny Manning couldn't do it. Mike Gottfried couldn't do it, even when he cheated to get Dennis Smith Jr. to go there. I mean, Josh Pashner has turned it around just a little bit, but oh, did I also forget? You're also, you're also going to have to be dealing with Leonard Hamilton and Florida State. Which one of those schools? You're going to take Clemson? You're going to take one of them jobs? And be able to compete year after year with the, with the heavyweights in the ACC? What about the Big East? What program can you take right now, Porter Mosier, that you can compete with Villanova and Jay Wright at their head coach right now? Can you do it at Xavier? Can you do it at Providence? Can you do it at St. John's? You ain't doing it at Georgetown. We got our coach, baby, America's coach. But can you do that? You have to ask yourself that question if you're looking to move up. In the SEC, what program can you take over that can you can have that you can consistently compete with uh, Calipari and Kentucky? Now, Nate Oates over at Alabama, Eric Musselman over at uh, Arkansas, Rick Barnes at Tennessee, Bruce Pearl at Auburn. They've had some success against Calipari and Kentucky, especially this year. Can you take a Mississippi, a Mississippi State? and have that type of success and compete with those guys, I'm, I'm quite sure those schools can pay you more. And you'll be in a conference to where, you know what, you'll be going head-to-head with these five-star recruits. As of right now, the five-stars, the one-and-dones, they ain't going to Loyola Chicago. you got to build that program a little bit differently. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? It'll be interesting with your Porter Mosier. But in terms of the storylines, in terms of everything that's going down in the NCAA tournament, when everything is all said and done, regardless of what happens, it'll be interesting to see the next move that Coach Porter Moser is going to do. Is he going to stay at Loyola of Chicago and build that powerhouse, something that hasn't been done? If he can do that, he's Hall of Fame without a, without a doubt. If he's doing what Mark Few can do, if he's going to be doing what John Thompson did, what Jerry Tarkanian did, what John Chaney did, what uh, Ray Meyer did, if he can do those things, Hall of Fame, regardless of how many championships that he wins. If he can build Loyola of Chicago into a consistent top-tier program, he'll get himself into the College Basketball Hall of Fame, or he'll get himself into the Hall of Fame. Will he do that, or will he take the big check and uh, try to win it at one of the Power Six conferences? It'll be interesting to see eventually what he does. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Final segment of the podcast, mainly going to go NBA free agency heavy. I wanted to get a little bit more into the NFL free agency, but you know what? I'll save that for another podcast. First segment talked about what I really wanted to talk about in terms of the NFL free agency, what my Washington football team did, the New England Patriots did, and some other things. So 
I'll get into more in-depth detail in the next podcast that I do, as long as getting into the uh, NBA free agency a little bit more also. But uh, yeah, I'll save some of that good stuff for later and also give you an autopsy on the 2020-2021 season for my Georgetown Hoyas that they got blown out in the first round of the NCAA tournament. So all of that will be on the next podcast for Wendell's World of Sports, which will be coming right around the Kona. But uh, I want to end this segment. I want to end the uh, podcast today with a little NBA talk. First of all, news came out a little bit uh, earlier today. Rest in peace to one of the greatest, one of the legends of the NBA, the great Elgin Baylor, the greatest basketball player or professional athlete in general that the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, which consists of Northern Virginia, most of Maryland, and all of D.C., has ever produced the DMV, as we like to say. Um, the greatest, Elgin Baylor. That includes Dave Bing, Michael Phelps, Len Bias, Kevin Durant, all of these great athletes who went on to star in their particular sport. The greatest athlete that the city has ever produced, the area has ever produced, has been Elgin Baylor. He died of natural causes on Monday. He was surrounded by his wife, Elaine, and his daughter, Crystal. The Los Angeles Lakers said in a statement, um, you know, his wife, Elaine, said in the statement that Elgin was the love of my life, my best friend, and like everyone else, I was in awe of his immense courage, dignity, and the time he gave to all fans. At this time, we ask that our that I and our family be allowed to mourn his passing in privacy. Now, Baylor was inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame in 1977. He became the sixth person to be honored by the Lakers with a statue, which was unveiled uh, unveiled in April of 2018. The team pre- previously retired his number 22 jersey in 1983. When I think of Elgin Baylor, and look, my knowledge in terms of watching the games, goes back to around the late 70s with the Bullets, with the uh, Washington Bullets, the fat ladies going to sing Dick Miller and those guys. And then my love for the NBA really took off when Magic Johnson came into the league, and I became a huge Los Angeles Lakers fan and lived and died with um, everything that the Lakers did. So, you know, from that period of time, that la- that Magic, one of my all-time favorite heroes, right up there with Ali and Len Bias, was a huge, huge Laker fan. But I also know that when it comes to the Los Angeles Lakers, when I come to talking about the Lakers, and for those who have any knowledge about the Lakers and how prestigious that their that their franchise is, that's all because of Elgin Baylor. Elgin Baylor might be one of the most underrated superstars, not just in NBA history, but in, in, in sports history altogether when it comes to team sports. When you're taking a look at baseball, basketball, football, and hockey in North America, Elgin Baylor is probably part of the one percentile of people who really don't, really didn't get the respect that he deserved while he was still living in terms of the importance that he was to his league, the importance that he was to his franchise, and the importance that he just was, period, as a human being. Uh, so many legends that we've lost so far in the last six to eight months. So many legends that we lost from all different types of sports. Henry Aaron just died. Marvin Hagler just died. Uh, Before that, people like Tom Seaver and and Bob Gibson, all those heroes, all of those icons, all of those legends passing on. If we could just take a look and take a look at all of those who passed in the last eight to 12 months, Elgin Baylor, man, underrated underrated in far as his importance. And I'm not just talking about what most people say when they say, 
you know, Baylor was the first player to introduce the style of play that you see wing players play today, the up and down, the ability for a, a player 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, to be able to handle the ball, to be able to shoot the ball, to be able to drive the ball, basically being able to go one-on-one. Without Elgin Baylor and his contributions, without Elgin Baylor, what he introduced to the game of basketball, without Elgin Baylor and his creativity and his genius in terms of doing that, the hang time, the body control, all those type of things, there would be no Connie Hawkins. There would be no Julius Irving. There would be no David Thompson or Dominique Wilkins or Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant, even LeBron James. There would That type of wing, that type of player would not exist. There probably wouldn't even be a Magic Johnson. Those type of players wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for Elgin Baylor. Elgin Baylor was the first guy, 6'6", 225, 230, coming out of Spingarn High School over on the uh, southeast side of Washington, D.C., went out to the west coast, the Pacific Northwest, played at Seattle. Seattle made it to the uh, 19, I believe, 56-57, somewhere around their championship game against Kentucky, where they lost, but Baylor was named the most outstanding player. And he brought a style, he brought charisma, he brought a, a way to play basketball that was never seen before. The game of basketball was vert, was uh, horizontal until Elgin showed up, until Mr. Baylor showed up and did his thing. In fact, legendary uh, basketball writer Bob Ryan said Baylor was, quote, the most influential individual offensive player in the last 60 years. And I remember Bob Cousy saying that Baylor was the first player in league history that basically you couldn't guard one-on-one. So that's the that, that was just the small importance of what Elgin Baylor was all about. But also, think about this. When Elgin Baylor came into the league, he was drafted, I believe, with the number two pick, or the number one or number two pick, by the then Minneapolis Lakers. Before they even went to L.A., they were in Minneapolis. Already had a dynasty with George Mike and winning four or five championships in five or six years. At the time, the season before the Lakers were 19-53, and 53, and Bob Short, the owner of the team was basically saying, look, you know what, This is we're, we're going to have to uh, disband this franchise. We just can't continue anymore. We're losing too much money. The franchise is just not solvent. We have to uh, go ahead and uh, sell the franchise. When they drafted Elgin Baylor, and he brought his excitement, and he brought his style of basketball to the, um, to the uh, franchise and to that city, I believe it was his second year that he got that Minneapolis squad who finished the season under 500 to the NBA championship where the Boston Celtics, Bill Russell, and that squad blew them out in four games. I believe one of the games in the NBA Finals, the final score was Boston 173, Minneapolis 139, or, so, or some nonsense like that. In a, oh, By the way, in a regular 48-minute game, Boston put up 179 points. Next time you want to talk about a team that doesn't play any defense, that's like the Brooklyn Nets early in the season times five in terms of their defensive ineptitude is concerned. They have a team in 48 minutes put up 173 points. What in the world? Of, who was coaching the other team? Paul West, Paul Westhead? They have a team, they'll allow a team to put up that many points anyways. Basically, what Elgin Baylor did with his impact came in when the rookie of the year was the co-MVP of the All-Star game with Bob Pettit that year. Basically, what he did, he saved the franchise and allowed the Minneapolis Lakers then to go out to Los Angeles. So we talk about without Elgin Baylor being in the league and introducing the style of play that he brought to the game, to the masses, 
the influence that he had on his style of play. And I mentioned, you know, no Michael Jordan, no Kobe Bryant, no David Thompson, no Julius Irving, no Connie Hawkins. How about this? If it wasn't for Elgin Baylor saving the Lakers, the Los Angeles Lakers that we know of would not be the Los Angeles Lakers. So the Magic Johnsons, the Kobe Bryants, all of the tremendous historic players that played for the Lakers would not be there, would not be in the record books, would not be in the annals of history playing for the Lakers if it wasn't for Elgin Baylor coming in and saving that franchise. So you're going to talk about one of the most influential players in NBA history. You're going to talk about one of the most underrated players in NBA history just based on the fact that could you imagine the NBA today, the NBA that you grew up with, could you imagine that league, this league, without the Los Angeles Lakers? I'm quite sure there would be a Laker, there would be a a Los Angeles franchise eventually in the NBA. But it sure wouldn't have been the Lakers. And we sure wouldn't have Jerry West playing for the uh, Lakers, which means that logo that you see today could be in jeopardy. This was all tied to Elgin Baylor. So rest in peace to the great one. Rest in peace to the legend. And rest in peace to one of the most underrated athletes. I think he's right up there, or at least in the same category, at least on the same plane, sitting at the same table in terms of the most accomplished athletes to be underrated and undervalued in the history of their sport and the history of what they did for their sport. I think Elgin Baylor is right up there with uh, Hank Aaron in terms of the greatness that sometimes is overlooked, that is sometimes taken for granted when we talk about what Elgin Baylor meant, not just to his franchise, not just to the league, but just in general in terms of the way basketball is played today. One of the reasons why Basketball has become the global sport, the global phenomenon that it is today. I remember Kobe Bryant talking about that he watched clips, old clips of Elgin Baylor to kind of mimic, to kind of see, to kind of learn to educate himself, to, be a become, to a become a better basketball player and incorporating a lot of what Elgin Baylor did into his game. So if it's good enough for Kobe Bryant, <laughs> shit, you must know that it was historic in terms of the greatness that Elgin Baylor had. 6'5", as I mentioned before, 230 pounds, small forward, first player probably along with Maurice Stokes at that time period. Maurice Stokes stood about 6'7", 250 pounds. He was more of the Charles Barkley before Charles, Charles Barkley came along, but both guys were had the ability to grab the defensive rebound and then take it all the way coast to coast, coast to coast, L.A. to Chicago, Western Vale and make a layup and make a play for somebody else. Both were excellent passers. Both were great shooters. Both were great finishers. As I mentioned before, the first player, Bob Cousy said, first player that you could not guard one-on-one. And there were guys, Baylor sides a little bit taller, who could shoot from the outside. Bob Pettit was um, the forerunner to players like Larry Bird, that 6'8", 6'9", guy who could shoot from the outside, who could put the ball on the floor, who could rebound, who could play a little small forward, power forward. Of course, Bob Pettit, as I mentioned before, the forefather, Larry Bird took it to another another level, and now we see Luka uh, taking it to another level. But, you know, were these players that you see today, and these historic players that many people think, I mean, you know, many people under the age of 40, there's, there's almost like certain segments of basketball fans. There's one group who thinks that the NBA was born when LeBron James and Kobe Bryant played. Then there's the other group of people who thought that the NBA was uh, born when Michael Jordan played. 
Then there's the group of people who thought the NBA was born when Magic Johnson and Larry Bird played. Now there's a whole bunch of players before them that came along that built and were the pioneers for the evolution of the NBA that we see today. So, yeah, I'm not going to sit here and say that the players that played in the 50s and the 60s could hang with the players of today. I'm not saying that at all. But if you're talking about the evolution of the game, the importance of the game, look, in about 50 years, there's going to be a guy playing in the NBA. I mean, I'll be over 100 years old, so I'll be long gone. So I won't, I won't be, I'll be long since dead, so I won't be around to see it. But there's going to be a, there's going to be a guy in the year 2075 that's going to be about seven foot six inches tall, who's going to be able to shoot from half court, who's going to be able to put the ball on the floor, who's going to be able to run a 40 and 4-1 and be able to bench 500 pounds. He's going to be like 7 6 325, and he's going to be the greatest athlete you've ever seen 50 years from now, 75 years from now. And people are going to take a look at old tapes of LeBron James and say like, man, that guy couldn't play in the NBA today. Are you kidding me? Look at the size of that guy. He's only 6'8", 250. People are going to look at Kobe Bryant. People are going to look at Dominique Wilkins. People are going to look at all of these players before and after and say, man, these guys couldn't play today. And if our era was still around, if our, our generation was still around, who saw those guys play, we could say, yeah, you know what? That guy who you see playing right now, you whippersnappers, who think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, he's magnificent. Yeah, he's incredible. Yeah, he's doing things that we've never seen before. But let me tell you something. Back when I was around your age, and I had the ability to watch Magic Johnson, and I had the ability to watch Magic Bird, and Isaiah Thomas, and Dominique Wilkins, and Adrian Dantley, and Kobe Bryant, and Shaquille O'Neal, and all these guys, yeah, because of evolution, they might not be the players that you're looking at today, but shit, let me tell you something, if it wasn't for those guys, if it wasn't for the LeBrons, if it wasn't for the Kobe's, if it wasn't for the Shaqs, if it wasn't for the Carl Malone's, if it wasn't for the Lucas, if it wasn't for the Giannis's, if it wasn't for those guys, uh, the guy that you're falling over and falling over and talking about he's the greatest thing and seeing he's the greatest of all time and all those type of nonsense, he wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for those guys. So it just continues to move. It just continues to evolve, not just NBA, not just sports, but in life. So, yeah, Belgian Baylor, go to YouTube. There's about an hour's worth of scouting on him in terms of um, some of the highlights that he had. You can take a look at that and be like, eh, big deal if you're someone 30 and under and that ignorant. You can take a look at that and be like, eh, big fucking deal. I see guys do that all the time. If it wasn't for Elgin Baylor, those type of things would not be happening. So learn and educate yourselves about the legends and the greats and the one who paved the way to allow the evolution to happen so we can have the wonderful basketball players that we have today and hopefully the LeBrons and players of his ilk and stature and legendary uh, status is influencing the next players of evolution when they can go ahead and uh, do the things that LeBron and those guys are doing, except instead of doing it at 6'7", 6'8", 6'9", they'll be doing it at 7'1", 7'3", 7'4". What's going to be the average basketball height in the 22nd century what eight foot six interesting great article though as i leave this talk about uh baylor and his passing rest in peace there's a great article from grantland bill simmons's old um, um place where he used to write his stuff there's a great article written by dave mckenna it's called wilt versus elgin when their world was the playground 
It's a really, really awesome piece. One of the greatest things I've read, the, I reread it uh, today because I hadn't taken a look at it in a while. The story was about the summer of 1957 when Wilt Chamberlain came to Washington, D.C. on the promise that he would get to play Elgin Baylor on the playground. And basically, it was the introduction for the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, mainly, mainly Washington, D.C. Elgin Baylor the, you know, putting the Washington, D.C. hoop scene on the map and how important that he was in terms of having the talent of basketball players from the Washington, D.C. area get discovered. Because before that, D.C. really wasn't known. It was all about Philadelphia. It was all about New York, Wilt Chamberlain from Philadelphia, playing in the parks and playing in the leagues and playing on the playgrounds out there. When he heard that Elgin Baylor, it was after Baylor, or it was after Chamberlain finished his uh, freshman season at the University of Kansas, and one of his friends, one of his frat brothers, was from Washington, D.C., and Chamberlain was like, well, I'm not going to hang around Lawrence, Kansas for the summer. I'm going to go on home. And the guy was like, you know, well, if you're going to take me home, why don't we stop off in Washington, D.C., and, um, you know, I can get you uh, an opportunity to uh, play with uh, play against Elgin Baylor. And that's the only thing that the Big Dipper, Will Chamberlain, needed to hear. He was like, I'm down. I'm in. Let's go. So the story was, I don't want to give too much of it away, but the story was that he spent two weeks going up against Baylor, went to Philadelphia, you know, said hello to his parents and, and, and relaxed for a few moments, and he came back down and spent another 10 days, and basically it was just playground basketball, playground basketball, playground basketball, Wilt Chamberlain versus Elgin Baylor, five-on-five, five, full court, playing, you know, basketball all over Washington, D.C., where they could because D.C., was segregated during those days, and the fact that so many people from the neighborhood came out to watch these guys play street ball on the uh, on the playgrounds, you know, in the back uh, in the back of uh, middle schools and at the parks and such, you would have two or three thousand people, you know, watching these games between Elgin Baylor's team and Wilt Chamberlain's team, and it was just number one, extremely well written, which is really fascinating, just a absolutely fantastic read. So. Look, you're talking about between them in their pro careers. We're speaking about Will Chamberlain and Elgin Baylor. They combined to score 61,000 points, grab 41,000 rebounds, and play in 24 All-Star games. So uh, I think it might be something, like I mentioned before, just an absolutely excellent read about the influence that Elgin Baylor had. And it was kind of mind-boggling, the fact that, you know what? I mean, there really isn't anything to let anybody know that Elgin Baylor was born in Washington, D.C., the greatest athlete to come out of our area. I mean, one of the most influential people, he's right up there with Marvin Gaye, to come out of the D.C. area in terms of public figures or entertainers or concern that there's nothing. There's no Elgin Baylor Street. There's no Elgin Baylor Park. There's no Elgin Baylor Way. There's no Elgin Baylor Community Homes. There's no Elgin Baylor nothing. There's no statue. There's no plaque. There's no nothing. I don't even know if you go to Spingard High School. Do they have anything? An Elgin Baylor Way, an Elgin Baylor Hallway, an Elgin Baylor Arena or something? Interesting. Well, Baylor went out to L.A. and never came back to D.C., so maybe they're saying, man, fuck you. But interesting. Very, very interesting. But uh, one of of my first uh, guys that I learned about before Magic Johnson, before, you know, was, was Elgin Baylor. So there you go. When you speak about my idols at the real young age, it was uh, hearing about Elgin Baylor before, of course, Bernard King, Len Bias, and uh, Magic Johnson came to the picture, but for me. So, but, uh, yeah, you know, rest in peace to the great one, Elgin Baylor. 
Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The NBA trade deadline is coming up. It'll be here in less than, I guess, what, 30-something hours or something like that? So the big deal is now, speaking about the Lakers, speaking about the Los Angeles Lakers, speaking about the Elgin Baylor Save That Franchise Los Angeles Lakers, what are they going to do with um, LeBron James? You got any ideas? Are they buyers? Are they sellers? If you don't know, LeBron suffered a high ankle sprain on Saturday afternoon when Solomon Hill of the Atlanta Hawks fell on top of James' right ankles. X-rays on the ankle were negative, but James will be sidelined indefinitely. With LeBron, who knows, man? It could be four weeks. It could be two weeks. You know, you don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit into the wind. You don't pull the mask off an old, old ranger. And you don't, you don't try to mess with LeBron James in terms of what Superman can do. So... Who knows? For maybe most mortals, it might take might take four to six weeks, which means for LeBron, it could take two to three. Who knows? The Lakers are currently tied for third in the West with the Los Angeles Clippers, 28-16. Currently, the Lakers are on a three-game losing streak. They're four games behind the number one seed, Utah Jazz in the Western Conference, two games behind the number two seed, Phoenix Suns. Here's the thing, though. They're tied with the Clippers for third, but only a game and a half ahead of the Trailblazers, excuse me, of the Denver Nuggets for fifth place in the West. And then they're two and a half games ahead of Portland for the number six seed. So in the two games that the team has played without LeBron, they lost to Atlanta when he went down. But the two games that they played since LeBron has been out for the totality of the games, they lost to Phoenix, 111-94. And then um, the games that I saw last night, they were blown out 128-111 by the New Orleans Pelicans. And you take a look at this upcoming schedule, the rest of the month, they got four games at home against Philadelphia, Cleveland, Orlando, and Milwaukee. I don't know if Giannis is going to be back for that game. I hope so. Then, and that Milwaukee game is at the end of the month, so maybe he is. Then, starting April 2nd till the 13th, the Lakers are on a seven-game road trip. Now, one of those games are a, you know, the, the, the quote-unquote road game. One of those road games is against the Clippers. So, I mean, you know, come on. But for real, you've got Sacramento, then you've got the Clippers, but then they go on an East Coast swing, playing Toronto, Miami, Brooklyn, the Knicks, and Charlotte. Then they're back home to play against Boston, and then a home and road set against the uh, Utah Jazz. So you're looking at 14 games here, the possibility where LeBron might not be playing or miss the majority of those games. Now, there's the possibility for the Lakers that Anthony Davis could be back for some of these games on the East Coast swing. But what's your goal? Come on, man, you're a Laker fan. What, what, what are we looking at here for this 14-game stretch? Realistically, I mean, everybody wants to say, yeah, I want to win 14 games. I want to go 14-0. Realistically, I think no worse than 6-8. and eight. Realistically, I think 7-7. Seven and seven. And I think if anything above that, consider it uh, a victory. Consider it, uh, consider it gravy in terms of your expectations. So when you take a look at how jumbled the Western Conferences, and you take a look at the Lakers in their injuries, and as I mentioned before in the first segment of the program, when LeBron and AD come back, how quickly are they going to be able to get back to a high level of playing? I mean, LeBron ain't coming back, and then the first time he steps on the court, he's going to be the LeBron that we saw before he got the injury. There's going to be a little rust, and same with Anthony Davis. So how long is it going to take for them to be the type of player to where it's like, look, you know what, as long as those two guys are on the court, L.A. fans, don't worry, we'll be fine. Is it going to be three games? Is it going to be five games? Is it going to be the difference between the Lakers 
securing the number three seed, or are they going to have to be playing in the playing game? So if you're the Lakers right now with the trade deadline approaching, are you buyers or are you sellers? I think when you take a look at the trade capital for the Lakers, and you have Taylor Horton Tucker, you have Alex Caruso, someone like Contavious Caldwell-Pope, that's about it. Because their best best draft chip to offer any team is not until 2027. You can maybe throw in Montrezl Harrell, but you don't want to be then cutting into your squad, cutting into your rotation to get somebody because they're not getting Bradley Beal. So where do you leave? Where did that leave? What type of upgrade can you get if you're looking to trade someone like a uh, Montrez Harold or looking to trade uh, Marcus Saul, who I'm quite sure really doesn't have any trade value at all the way he's been playing this season? Are you going to get rid of the uh, third best scorer on your team and Dennis Schroeder? Who are you going to uh, pick up that's going to replace or replicate or improve what you have coming from him right now? It ain't going to be Aaron Gordon. You can't have enough to offer anything from Norman Powell. You're not going to have anything to offer to get Victor Oladipo. So where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Now, according to ESPN Brian Windhorst, the Lakers won't trade Horton Tucker or the draft pick to potentially acquire a wing player like an Evan Fournier or something like that. Windhorst also said, and was also the first to report, that the Lakers are willing to move Caldwell Pope. Now, somewhat attractive. Pope, a guy, 3 and D guy. Most of the season, been shooting the ball well. Has two years remaining on a contract around the neighborhood of 27 mil. So we're looking at 13 and then 14 mil in the second year of that. But if the Lakers want to get a player of substance, i.e. Aaron Gordon, in a trade, they're going to have to include Horton Tucker. And right now the Lakers are saying no. And from what I've heard or from what I've read, the Lakers aren't interested in adding any more payroll. They're really looking to shred payroll. Hence, one of the reasons why they're offering Contavious Caldwell-Pope instead of Taylor Horton Tucker, or maybe someone like an Alex Caruso. Now, on Tuesday, the Ringers' uh, Kevin O'Connor, he reported that the Lakers can make a few moves as they prepare to make a run at Cleveland Cavalier Center. Andre Drummond, formerly of Detroit, who right now is sitting at home collecting cash because uh, Cleveland said, hey, man, no need for you to show up. Go home, and uh, we'll see what we can do to trade you, and if not, we'll release you. So if the Cavaliers are likely to buy out Andre Drummond, or if they can't find a deal for him by the trade deadline and they let him go, then there's rumors that, you know what, he's going to be going to the Lakers. It was rumored that it was either going to be Brooklyn or the Lakers, but once Brooklyn got themselves... Um, Blake Griffin, that they then cooled on acquiring Andre Drummond. So, to even think about those things, this was reported in, um, this was reported where Montrez Harold had been involved in some trade discussions with the Charlotte Hornets, who went, went after Harold in the offseason, being interested. Now, if you're thinking about, well, what does Charlotte exactly have of substance that LA can give in return which is outside shooting well nothing so if the Hornets even wanted to even think about trying to acquire Montrez Harrell they would somehow some way have to get a third team involved for a three-way trade so in this situation you know have been involved in some trade discussions I mean how deep does that go once again we're taking a look at what's your definition how are you going to define this I mean 
it's not like the Lakers are calling up the league and saying, or not calling up people and saying, hey, you know what? Montrez Harold is available. What do you got for him? What do you got for us? It's just a matter of if we need to get things done. This is my interpretation when I hear something like has, has been involved in some trade discussions. My interpretation of that is saying, hey, look, this is what uh, we might need to think about if we want to get uh, some of the players that we want to get. Doesn't mean we're going to do it, but if they offer, we're going to have to have that discussion. It might ultimately be that we'll say no to the offer, but Montrez Harrell is not untouchable. That's what I. That's what I think. That's what I define involved in some trade discussions. So we'll see. We'll see. But teaming around the NBA, I believe Andre Drummond is headed to the Lakers, even though, even though over the last month the Brooklyn Nets and the Lakers have been widely regarded as the favorite for Andre Drummond. But the Boston Celtics, the New York Knicks, the Dallas Mavericks, the Chicago Bulls, they've all, uh, according to league sources, they've all been interested, kicking the tires, uh, inquiring. What happens if the the, um, Cavaliers say, we're not going to give this guy up? Andre Drummond is still a good player. He ain't washed up. He ain't done. He ain't through. He still has some value. And if the Boston Celtics are desperate enough to make a trade, Tom Thibodeau, who does everything humanly possible to try to improve the team. Now, Leon Rose is running the squad in terms of the decision-making is concerned on the personnel. But what happens if Thibodeau can convince Leon Rose? You know what? Let me let Kevin Knox, maybe a couple of picks. Maybe we can go ahead and get uh, Andre Drummond. If the Dallas Mavericks might uh, want to swing for the fences and try to get Drummond in the trade, same thing with the Chicago Bulls. What will happen to the Lakers if that scenario happens? Where, no, we're not going to um, we're not going to buy out Andre Drummond. The Lakers don't have enough as far as draft capital is concerned to go ahead and make a trade, even if they bring in another, another team to do it. So if they can't get Drummond, then the Lakers would probably make a trade, make a play for LaMarcus Aldridge and hope that he is someone that could be bought out if, there's no real seekers, even though the Miami Heat has also been sniffing around that uh, situation. So for the Lakers, look, man, it's all about LeBron, all about AD getting healthy. It's all about getting a big. It's all about making sure that, look, you know, small ball, L.A. is kind of not what you call the conventional small ball team. When you have someone like a LeBron James who could play power point forward, when you have someone like Anthony Davis who had the length to play forward, you know, this is not a Golden State Warriors type of a small ball type of team. You know, Anthony Davis, front court player, can move over and play center very easily. Even at the stages of his career, just even on the defensive end, LeBron can be matched up against power forwards, whether they're regular, whether they're small ball, whatever situation is in. So you can build around that. I still think Dennis Schroeder is going to be that guy. I still think Dennis Schroeder is a viable option. Yeah, would you like to have the Lakers solidify what's going on and then um, get themselves ready to play at the third seed, at the second seed, at the fourth seed, and not have to be dealing with the play-in game and those type of things? Yeah, sure. But this is almost like a blessing in disguise, I think, because really, if you think about it, Anthony Davis, who's always had a history of nagging injuries, not major injuries, but these, these nagging injuries that keep him out a week or two weeks or a certain amount of time, the turnaround from the Lakers winning the championship to Anthony Davis coming back and playing, I was like, isn't this kind of inevitable? Isn't this kind of bound to happen? 
And with LeBron, when you're speaking about 18 years in the league, he doesn't need uh, two or three weeks off, four weeks off in this situation. If the goal, once again, is to get them rip-roaring, ready to go by Memorial Day, which is the time the playoffs start. So this injury could be a blessing. And if they can go ahead and get an Andre Drummond and incorporate him into the squad, don't think that this is devastating. The Lakers are making moves. The Lakers are buyers to kind of right the ship and kind of hold it off a little bit to kind of, you know, keep things copacetic until LeBron and AD is concerned. I mean, this is not a make-or-break season for trading for the Los Angeles Lakers. So I think when everything is all said and done, I think they'll get themselves an Andre Drummond and they'll come back, and um, I think they'll be fine. I think they'll be fine. I don't think Montrez Harold is going anywhere. I think that they'll continue to work that pick and roll with uh, him and Dennis Schroeder. I think that those, those guys have been um, very well. I think those guys have done well on the pick and roll and in that situation. So I still think, despite the injury to LeBron, that's going to keep him out for possibly a month, even though we still don't know what's going on with Anthony Davis. It was He's two weeks away from being two weeks away and being ready to play. He's going on stages here. And the stage that he's at right now is not saying that he's going to be back in the fold in the near future, even though I think that it's going to be another week or two before he does. So um, we'll see. We will see. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. It's just a bevy of just trade, NBA trade deadline news and rumors. I mean, the Toronto Raptors are still looking to sell. This is a situation where their squad, their season's in free fall. Kyle Lowry and Norman Powell are definitely on the trade block, according to multiple reports. In fact, up there in Canada, beautiful Canada, oh, Canada, where the women out there are gorgeous, especially if you talk about Toronto. Sportsnet's Michael Grange reported that Toronto has been more aggressive in soliciting offers for Norman Powell than Kyle Lowry. And really, if I think about it, just just say, for instance, I'm someone like a um, Miami Heat or someone like a Philadelphia 76er squad. Long term, I mean, maybe for the short term, you you go ahead and might say Cal Lowry is a better prospect for us to go after for the short term, for the 2021 playoffs. But if I'm going to sign somebody for the next three to four years or two years with an option, I'm going after Norman Powell more than Cal Lowry. Cal Lowry this week is going to be 35 years old. He's a gamer. He's tough. He's a champion. He's a leader. Definitely positive for your squad. No question, no doubt about it. But does Cal Lowry make them that much better or get them that closer or separate them more than um, with him on the team? When you're going up against the Brooklyn Nets or the Milwaukee Bucks who made a good move in acquiring P.J. Tucker, is it enough to hold off the uh, Boston Celtics if they fully get right with Kemba and Jalen and Jason and Marcus Smart and a big man? What happens if they go out and get themselves Andre Drummond? Would that uh, elicit a response from the 76ers to then say, you know what, I don't give a damn about three or four years down the road. I'm trying to win now. Kyle Lowry gives us the best chance right now to win, to go ahead and supersede the move that would be made if 
the Celtics were to go ahead and acquire someone like an Andre Drummond or maybe acquire someone like an Eric Gordon. I don't know. If I were the 76ers, I don't know. I would have to do my homework and, and, and see what happens. Because, as I mentioned before, with Lowry being 35 years old this week, Norman Powell is only 27. Now, he holds an $11.6 million player option for next season, which means that he's going to be a free agent. Um, well, you know, he had a player option in the way he's playing this year. He's going to decline it. So, you know, on the free market, Powell's going to get somewhere around, what, 15 mil, somewhere around there from a team. And Toronto's not going to do that. Look, we just paid a boatload of money for a guard named Fred Van Vliet. We're not going to go ahead and do that again. We still got Pascal Siakam on our team. We still got OG Adenobi on our team. So we're not going to go ahead and, you know, be in luxury tax and do all those type of things for Norman Powell. Nice guy, but, you know, nice player and everything. But, uh, you know, we're not going to do that. So if you're the Raptors, are you just going to let them walk out the door? Not if uh, they learn the situation with the Boston Celtics where they let their prize free agents or some of the players that they could have gotten some, um, some, some, some nice little refund back walk out the door for nothing. See Gordon Hayward. See uh, Kyrie Irving. See Al Horford. So Toronto's looking at that and saying, we ain't going to be doing that. So we're not going to re-sign Norman Powell. Let's see what we can do to get something back for him. So here's a guy, Powell, averaging 19.5 points, shooting 55% from twos, 43.5% from threes. That'll get some people talking. That'll get the Philadelphia 76ers interested. That'll get the Boston Celtics interested. No, not Boston. That'll get the, um, that'll get the uh, Miami Heat interested. If you're the Los Angeles Clippers, do you move hell or high, har, uh, high water to do everything that you can to get yourself into the Norman Powell race? Who do you call up? What, who can Lord Franks call and talk to to see what they can do to be included? Because the Clippers definitely need a point guard. They've been linked to trying to get themselves a Ricky Rubio, get themselves a Lonzo Ball. But what do they have? What do they have? Patrick Beverly? They don't have any draft picks. They're all with Oklahoma City. Who do you got? Luke Kennard? No. What 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 player? Terrence Mann? No. Lou Williams? No. Zubak? Maybe, but are you willing to give him up? Are you gonna prefer to are you gonna go big? Are you gonna go small to uh trade your big for that? If you're the Clippers, they need a point guard. They need a point guard. They need a point guard. They don't have right now. One right now. Patrick Beverly is not a facilitator. Lou Williams is a scorer. Uh, Kawhi Leonard is a small forward. Paul George is a scoring guard forward combo. They don't have anybody who, when things get rough, can run a set play for them. I was watching Atlanta. All it was was Kawhi Leonard, when when, when the uh, Clippers got uh, down quickly, or got down by 20 in the third quarter, and when they were losing in the second quarter, I mean, there was a stretch, I think, for about three or four minutes where the offense possession was get the ball to Kawhi in the half court and let him go one on five. And everybody else was standing around. I swear, there was, I'm, not, I'm not joking, man. I'm not joking. There was about five straight possessions where Kawhi got the ball. And, uh, you know, Kawhi is very deliberate, very methodical. But, you know, dribble, dribble, youth screen, dribble, 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 back to the basket, dribble, dribble, fadeaway, dribble, junk book, dribble. I mean, it was just, first it was bad basketball to watch. It was boring basketball to watch. It was stagnated. Nobody was getting involved. Nobody was getting any rhythm. Yet four guys, Paul George included, sitting there watching Kawhi Leonard 
Go one on five, dribble, dribble, move, dribble, back to the basket, dribble, dribble, jump hook, fade away from the left baseline, dribble, pull up jumper from 12 feet on the right baseline, miss. It was just boring basketball, and there was nothing to where the Clippers could get a set play to where they could get an easy basket for somebody. That's what they're missing. That's what they need. Patrick Beverly is not that guy, and everybody else I just mentioned, they're not that guy. So because of that, again, the Clippers are looking for someone, anybody, who uh, can run their show. Reggie Jackson definitely isn't that guy either. So, again, they look at Norman Powell. I would be salivating and drooling, but unfortunately, I take a look at the competition. I don't have a Kendrick Nunn. I don't have a Tyler Hero. I don't have a Duncan Robinson. I don't have a Tyrese Maxey. And I don't have any draft picks that I can throw at the Toronto Raptors to get me a Norman Powell. And, and as I mentioned again, I don't know what other team could come in there and help them uh, do that. So, interesting with Norman Powell. Philadelphia's interested. They need a point guard. I think they're a point guard away from really separating themselves. And if Brooklyn is right, once the playoffs start, Kyrie Irving is off again. James Harden, James Harden has been MVP-like. Kevin Durant, if they get him back from this hamstring injury, whenever he comes back, uh, depending upon what they do with the trade deadline, uh, Blake Griffin could provide a little bit of minutes. If he can give those guys 8 to 10 minutes a night during the playoff, come in as a second tier, a uh, guy to replace, maybe spend two or three minutes as a small ball center on the second team and maybe provide five or six minutes a night to uh, respite, to uh, give Kevin Durant some rest and, and, and give Jeff Green some rest uh, as far as the responsibilities are concerned for what he has to do on the court. Hey, I think uh, Brooklyn made a strong move with the Blake Griffin acquisition. And it gets my Wizards exactly dunks just to say, how do you like me now? Don't forget. Mama said, knock you out. Don't call it a comeback. I've been dunking for years, even though I haven't for the last year. So for the 76ers, you would have to make a move, right? So what are they going to do? Are they going to go all in for Kyle Lowry? Are they going to go in for a Norman Powell? And down the, uh, down the eastern seaboard, out there in Miami, you have Pat Riley, not interested in the long-term plan, not interested in what's going to be happening five or ten years from now. Hence to say, before when the Heat were in trade talks, whether it be with James Harden or anybody else, it was always Tyler Hero, untouchable, not going there, don't ask us, no way, no how, thanks for calling, click. Now all of a sudden, when it comes to someone like a Kyle Lowry, it's like, maybe, possibly, let's keep talking, don't give up on me yet, you know, maybe there's a chance. So, who knows? Maybe it's a situation where when you take a look at Tyler Hero and you took the, take a look at the way he's playing this year and the fact that over his last 10 games, he's 32 for 122 in terms of shooting is concerned. Yeah, that's around 30%. He's had games of 4 of 11, 3 of 12, 1 of 6, 1 of 7. You know, he's had those type of games. It's like a little bit more of a, well, you know, what the hell? Going 4 of 15, 3 of 11. His two best shooting games over that 10-game stretch was 8 of 16 and 7 for 15. Not exactly lighting up the lights. So if you're the Miami Heat and you have an opportunity, like I said, Pat Riley is always in win mode now, and he really doesn't give a shit about a player's feelings or anything like that. If, he's, if it's going to help his team, he's going to go ahead and do it. And if they don't trade Tyler Hero... I'm quite sure that, you know, Pat Riley and Eric Spolter is not going to come in there and say, Oh, that's okay, Tylee, Tylee. 
We really do love you. You're just the greatest. It's just a sweet little thing. Now you go out there and you play for your Uncle Patty and and and, and Uncle Eric, okay? Yeah, that ain't Pat Riley. Pat Riley's like, yeah, we tried to trade you. It didn't work. Get your ass out there and play, period. Heat wave, move. So that's that's the deal. Hey, yeah, look, we tried to trade you, but we didn't trade you. You're an important part of our team. You're still being employed by us. You still get a paycheck. Put your pants on. Put your big boy pants on and get out there and do your thing. Move. Period. End of discussion. And guess what? If we try, try to trade your ass in 15 seconds, so be it. It's a, man's, it's a man's game, son. You ain't in college no more. You ain't in Nowheresville, Wisconsin anymore, where you got the sophomore and junior cheerleaders from high school up there fawning all over your ass. This ain't Kentucky. This ain't Lexington. You're in the big boys now. So get out there and play. And that's for Kendrick Nunn. That's for Duncan Robinson. I'm quite sure, you take a look at those numbers, I'm quite sure there's a little bit of, damn, really, I'm being traded? Y'all gonna treat me like this? What I did for y'all? Y'all up there having me on the trade block? Really? Because you know Tyler Hero, just like, you know, maybe Kendrick Dunn and the rest of those guys, Duncan Robinson, you know they got family or friends talking about, man, did you hear this? I read this and this, that, and the other. So even if Spolstra and Riley are saying, hey, man, don't worry about it. Yeah, people are asking about you. When they're reporting that you're in trade talks, it means that people are calling and asking about you, and we're saying, no, forget it. You should be flattered, the fact that there's so many people asking for your services. That just shows you how great you are. And the fact that we're not making those trades for them right now means that's how much we care about you. That's how much we know how great you are. Riley and Spolstra and Mickey Harrison and those guys, those guys can say that Tyler Hero... But shit, when you've got your mom and your dad and your homeboys and all this kind of stuff talking about, man, I read this, I heard this, I saw this, this, that, and the other, and they say this, that, and the other about you, this, that, and the other, it's got to be a little, like, goddamn, it's got to be a little something. And Tyler Hero, this is his first time around the block in terms of being a professional. He's still, what, 21, 22 years old? No excuse, but as far as the maturity level and the age level, I mean, that's got to either be confusing or get them a little bit bipolar in terms of, you know, what's going on, what am I hearing, this, that, and the other. But, you know, there's a situation now. The original plan for Miami was, look, you know, we want Kyle Lowry, but we're going to give you Duncan Robinson. No, we're going to give you Kendrick Nunn. We're going to give you um, Kelly Kelly Ubrick. Not Kelly Ubrick. We're going to give you Kelly Olenek, Kendrick Nunn, and Gordon Dragic. And then when Masai said, nice try, you got something else, they then said, okay, well, you know what, we'll think about giving you Duncan Robinson. And Masai was like, uh-uh. And Riley was like, what do you mean, uh-uh? Masai is like, you know who I want. Riley's like, who? Come on, Pat. You know who I want. And Riley said, nah, fuck you, man. <laughs> Tyler Hero, it's off limits. I'm not giving you Tyler. We can give you Duncan. We can talk about maybe, you know, a situation like that. Maybe Dragic, you know, Kendrick Nunn. But we're not giving you Hero. We're not giving you Hero. We're not giving you Hero. He's untouchable. We didn't trade him for James Harden. We're definitely not going to trade him for Cal Lowry. Sorry. But since then, as I mentioned before, it's been like, oh, eh, eh, well, uh, Get a little embers to that flame that Yasai is trying to spark by speaking about Tyler Hero. So we'll see. We've got to make some decisions about this sooner rather than later. You're in the Miami Heat. Hey, man, what are you going to do? 
What are you going to do about this? Jimmy Butler is in his 30s. You know, he is the foundation of this team. How many more prime years does he have left? How many more franchise, you know, leading faces of the franchise, top 15 can lead a team to a championship, conference championship, NBA championship years? Does Jimmy Butler have left? Is Kyle Lowry the one who's going to put them over? What's going to be the short and long term for this? I remember people in the Heat organization organization talking about Tyler Hero was going to turn out to be better than Devin Booker, to which I laughed out loud about that. But that was like, yeah, you know what? There, I, there's some in the Heat organization. I would love anybody to put their name to that one who thought that, um, you know, ultimately Tyler Hero is going to be better than Devin Booker in their pro careers. Maybe if Devin Booker, something happens to him injury-wise, that doesn't have him come back forever. But I don't see that one. So we don't know. The contenders in the East, they're making moves. The Bucks, as I mentioned before, made the move with P.J. Tucker. The Heat have been linked to LaMarcus Aldridge, maybe Victor Oladipo. Clippers again, Lonzo Ball, George Hill, who's always seemed to be going somewhere on a non-guaranteed contract and making a making a splash for a for a contending team. Ricky Rubio, the run of the squad, he's out there in Purgatory in uh, Minnesota. They're trying to build their squad around Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns. I don't know why they would need Ricky Rubio, hence the Clippers may be thinking about that. But then again, what are you going to get to uh, offer the Minnesota Timberwolves for Ricky Rubio? How about this? The Indiana Pacers are looking to be sellers. Of all people, the Indiana Pacers, here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Pacers are looking to be sellers. Look, they're 19 and 23. They're in ninth place in the Eastern Conference heading into uh, Tuesday night. This was a report from Vince Goodwill of Yahoo Sports. He reported that Malcolm Brogdon could be a trade piece as the Pacers look to hand the ball handling responsibilities to Karis LeVert as soon as he's medically cleared to play. Brogdon's in the second year of a four-year, $85 million contract, but looks very manageable right now. And there's also reports from Goodwill that the Pacers would be open to training Demonis Sabonis, which I can't believe that one. Here's a guy who's 24 years old. He's signed to a pretty nice contract through 23-24. I, I, I don't know exactly what the Pacers would be thinking if they traded Sabonis. In fact, Goodwill reports that you know teams are monitoring Sabonis but I think maybe Indiana's looking for, what, close somewhere around a James Harden type deal or maybe a Drew Holiday type deal where it's like multiple draft picks, first round draft pick for the next couple of years and a nice young player to build around. There's there's nothing out there. It's almost like there's like three or four teams that have like hoarded all of the first round draft picks from here, from this draft till 2099. Duck Dodgers in the 22nd century type of stuff. You got Oklahoma City who has a boatload of uh, first-round draft picks. You have the New Orleans Pelicans who own a boatload of first-round draft picks. I don't know a team willing to go ahead and and do that. The Brooklyn Nets, excuse me, the Houston Rockets, they have a boatload of first-round draft picks due to the uh, James Harden trade. So if you're certain teams, yeah, the bonus of bonus would be nice. But, I mean, what are you going to give up? So I, I think that's just fodder. Indiana's always Indiana has been trying to change their way of playing basketball. They want to be 
up and down. They want to be fast tempo and they want to remove themselves from what Nick McMillan brought as a coach, which was more of a half court grind, slow type of game. Larry Bird uh, hired McMillan, so he you know drafted a bunch of white guys. So you know nothing says slow down, unathletic uh, half court basketball like drafting a bunch of uh, slow, unathletic white guys. See Tyler Hansborough, see a couple of other those guys. So you know I can understand um, from that standpoint why Demontis Sabonis might be. Might, might be a situation where, you know, well, show me what you got. Tell me what you got, what you want from them. Talk to me about, talk to me about it, but I, I can't, you know, you, you build around Sabonis. You don't trade that guy. At least I don't think. I wouldn't do it if I was Indiana, but, you know, I'm not Kevin Pritchard, so there you go. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that we could be with you, and I could be with you also. Let me end with Aaron Gordon possibly going to the Boston Celtics. Now, this is according to Mark Murphy of the Boston Herald. The Celtics are offering a first-round pick and two and a young player for the Magic in exchange for Gordon. Talks between the two teams are still, quote-unquote, alive at this point. But everyone does everything at the last minute anyway of the trade deadline. You know, for the most part, you're not going to go ahead and fold that easily. And I'm also thinking that the... Uh, Pacers are doing everything they can. Oh, excuse me. The uh, Celtics, uh, the Magic are doing everything they can to see about other teams and if they're interested, like the Portland Trail Blazers, the Denver Nuggets, and the Dallas Mavericks. They're also in the mix. So, Gordon's played five games since returning from a sprained ankle on March 11th, and so far he's averaging 14 and a half points on 40% three point shooting, six and a half rebounds, four assists in 24 games this season. Would be a nice second unit type guy for the Celtics. Um, I think it would also be great for the Portland Trailblazers. Now, who are they willing to give up? I don't know, but I can see an improvement, Aaron Gordon over Carmelo Anthony in that lineup for Portland. And for uh, Dallas, you know, another guy, again, who could work off Luka. I think that he would be an excellent small ball forward with a little bit of three in there also, speaking about Aaron Gordon. So those are the things that are coming down the pike as we get closer to the trade deadline on Thursday. All right, that's it. I'm done. Good talk. Good discussion. Good podcast. Loved it. Enjoyed it. A lot of basketball. A lot of basketball talk. I'll be back in a few days talking about some NFL, talking about some NBA, talking about anything that's going down the pike, talking about anything that's coming up, talking about this Deshaun Watson situation over in Houston. What, there now 16 people? Bill Cosby sitting in prison going, damn, son. You know, you uh, you even impressed me with all these females coming out of the woodwork. Are they lying? Are they not lying? What's the latest? I'll get into all that on my next podcast. But for this podcast, I want to thank you very much for listening. So as always, as I end the program, as I end the podcast, do what you can, please, to make this world, to make your block, to make your community, to make your neighborhood just a little bit better to be around. Society, we need to move forward, and we do that with love. Unity, togetherness, education, learning, understanding, peace, harmony, love, all of them things. Namaste, konnichiwa, wassalamu alaikum, kepasa, bonjour, bonsoir, good night, music. Music.